Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether people are still using bed nets for fishing even when they don't live near a body of water. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. It is about damn time that we got around to doing an episode on malaria. Malaria is not something I have to think about often in the UK, but globally there are still something like 250 million cases of the disease a year, and it causes 600,000 deaths or so, mostly in young children. The crazy thing about this, and the reason it has attracted so much attention from people focused on effective charity over the years, is that we know full well how to put an end to it, and on paper, the necessary equipment looks like it costs peanuts. Today's guest came strongly recommended, and he has helped us produce a seriously comprehensive episode here. James Dubindarana is a triple threat, a medical doctor, an academic medical researcher, and an expert with decades of experience actually designing and delivering medical interventions in the developing world. Malaria isn't one of the pressing global problems that I happen to know the most about, so as you're going to hear, I was learning a ton as we went. Many of you out there will have heard of the charity evaluator GiveWell, which aims to seek out nonprofits that have strong evidence of effectiveness, that can save or improve lives the most per dollar, and that have room to effectively spend more money and grow. They've long recommended giving to groups like the Against Malaria Foundation and the Malaria Consortium, where James works. Because they're leading mass deployment of insecticide-treated bed nets, as well as seasonal malaria chemo prevention. James and I talk plenty about the various pros and cons of each of those two approaches, but we actually open the episode by talking about more emerging ways to eliminate malaria, including a recently approved vaccine and genetically-assisted mosquito elimination. James is cautiously optimistic about both of those strategies, and personally, I came out very hopeful about the latter and wonder if it shouldn't be getting a whole lot more attention than it currently is. After that, we discuss how it is that malaria is still so prevalent, what's unusual about malaria as a disease, the key strategic choices faced by the Malaria Consortium, what upcoming research we can look forward to in the area, and plenty more besides. All right, without further ado, I bring you James Tabindarana. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. James Tabindarana. James is the Global Technical Director at Malaria Consortium, a nonprofit with an annual budget of around £100 million a year. Malaria Consortium is one of GiveWell's top recommended charities, where they estimate that uh, they can protect a child from malaria for a year for about $6.50 and save a life for each $4,500 that it spends. As a result, it has received over $170 million in grants from Good Ventures. James trained as a medical doctor at Makerere University in Uganda, and then as an epidemiologist at the University of Cambridge and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, uh, where he is now an honorary associate professor. He joined Malaria Consortium in 2005, just a few years before it was founded, and worked as Africa Technical Director and Development Director before becoming Global Technical Director. During the last 20 years in the field, he helped study parasite-based diagnosis for malaria before treatment, changed Uganda's anti-malarial treatment policy to artemisinin-based combination therapy, and spearheaded the establishment of a national research center for malaria in Uganda. Thanks for coming on the podcast, James. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here to speak about my work, my experience, Importantly, a disease that is really personal to me, mm. as well as an organization that I've worked for for over 15 years and value its mission as well as the impact that it has. Yeah, I, I hope we'll get to talk about progress on malaria vaccines and why Malaria Consortium focuses on the interventions and places that it does. Uh, but first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? I'm working on an intervention called Intermittent Preventive Treatment of Infants. It's an intervention that was recommended by WHO in 2010, whereby a child in the infant age group that's under one should receive a complete dose of a drug called sulfadoxin pyrimethamine either three times or more through the expanded program for immunization. And that way it can protect the child in the first year of life from malaria. 
Since 2010, this intervention has only been scaled up in one country, Sierra Leone. And currently, we have funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to carry out a study in Nigeria to study the effectiveness of IPTI, that's the acronym, yeah, and provide evidence to the government so that it can potentially think about adopting it as an additional tool. This is important because, as WHO has been saying, we have stalled in our progress towards achieving malaria elimination. Hmm. And what implementers like ourselves, as well as researchers, are trying to do is to find the additional interventions that can be added to the current strategies and maximize the impact that we're achieving. So you mentioned that things have slightly stalled lately on uh, malaria prevention. I noticed in some of the graphs, things like were kind of turning around in 2020. I assume that that was probably COVID related. Is that a big part of the explanation? It actually started before COVID. Ah. I would say roughly around 2017. Hmm. The substantial progress that had been made sort of started to plateau off. Hmm. And I think since that point, we've not seen the dramatic declines Mm. that we've had in the last two decades. And that, I think, is a combination of factors Mm. of which certainly COVID has caused some disruptions. But you have other risks, things like um, insecticide resistance. Mm. You have the fact that we don't have the optimal funding Mm. that is required. WHO, on average, estimates that we need something like 6.8 billion US dollars per annum to really achieve the global technical strategy targets. Mm. And on average, we're about 3 billion per annum. Mm. So there's a huge funding gap that does not allow us to implement and deploy all the interventions that could be appropriate in particular geographical locations. I know malaria is a complex disease. And I think over the last two decades, we have been successful because I think that's the relative easy part. We've been scaling up interventions trying to achieve high coverage with our interventions. Mm. And I think we've potentially reached the maximum impact that we can achieve with the current methods. I don't mean changing interventions, but I think what we now need to be doing is really targeting better, optimizing the field. So where we have 50% coverage of some interventions is really finding out what we can do to increase that to about 80% or even 90% in some locations. And then you have um, behavior change, working very closely with communities to really get to understand what they feel as their priorities, but how they can engage with these interventions and really take them up as they are designed. Fantastic. Well, that that is basically an agenda for the rest of the conversation, or or at least a lot of it. Okay, before we go on, a lot of listeners are going to have some idea about malaria, and and a few of them are going to be incredible experts on malaria as well. But uh, let's very quickly give everyone a, a brief refresher. How is malaria spread? Malaria is spread by a vector called the mosquito and primarily the Anopheles mosquito. It's usually, it's the female Anopheles mosquito that Mm. spreads malaria. And of about 400 different species um, of mosquitoes, there are about 40 Anopheles that are responsible for spreading malaria. And so the the female, uh, it bites one person, picks up this tiny single-celled parasite? Or, uh, yeah, I'm, not, what, she, <laughs> okay. yes. I'm just trying to remember back to my high school biology here. Yeah. So it picks up this parasite and then it goes and bites someone else and passes it into their blood as well. Yeah, so yeah. the life cycle of, I would say, the parasite combines a presence in the mosquito as well as in the host, the human being. And what happens is that a mosquito will pick up 
a sexual stage mm. of the parasite from a person who is infected. And that sexual stage called a gametocyte mm. gets into the mosquito and goes through a process of development and turns into something called sporozoites that are mm. in the salivary gland of the mosquito. And the next time that female mosquito is feeding, it will introduce those sporozoites into the skin of the next person that it bites. And the sporozoites go, a go through a process where they move into the bloodstream and establish themselves in the liver of the individual. It could be a child, it could be a pregnant person, a woman, it could be an adult male. And in the liver, depending on what type of parasite it is, for example, Plasmodium falciparum, can then convert into other cells, which mm. are called mirozoids, that then attack the red blood cell. Okay. Plasmodium vivax can stay in the liver by forming what are called hypnozoids. And those can stay in the liver for several years ah, okay. without exposing themselves. And that's why vivax malaria is complicated in that it has a potential to propagate itself ah. even without without symptoms, but also without um, mosquito bites. Oh, right. So with falciparum, it then the mirozoids are then present in the red blood cells and destroy the red blood cells and continue that cycle of destroying the red blood cells. They also make the red blood cells less able to carry oxygen. And therefore, one of the symptoms that is caused by the parasite infecting the red blood cells is that the individual may not have enough oxygen carrying capacity. And then those mirozoites, some of them will be converted into gametocytes, mm. and then you have the cycle again repeating itself. What I'd like to stress, and I think sometimes people don't appreciate this, mm. is the transmissibility of malaria. So we've all seen the COVID pandemic, and there's something called the basic reproductive number. And that describes the number of people who are not immune to a disease who will be infected by that disease if one person who is infected is introduced into that population. Mm. So with COVID, um, the number can be, let's say, up to five. In some situations, maybe six or eight. With Ebola, it's up to about 2.5. With measles, it's up to about 18 individuals who get infected from one infected person. Yeah. For malaria, it's more than 3,000. <laughs> Sorry, how, how is that possible? So, because of yeah. the mosquito. Okay, because the mosquito will bite so many people or because one person is ill and then they're infectious for quite a period of time and then so many mosquitoes will bite them Ex and then they'll go off and bite so exactly. many people. Exactly, okay. exactly. So the mosquitoism has a multiplier effect. Mm. So an infected person will be infective for a period of time mm. um, until they either get treated or because of their immune system, they're able to clear the parasites. Yeah. But more often than not, it's until they get treated. And in that time, they potentially will be transmitting if a mosquito, a female Anopheles mosquito, mm. takes a blood meal and picks those gametocytes. So one infected person in a population that is non-immune mm. will have mosquitoes transmitting, and that can multiply all the way, as I said, in some situations where transmission intensity is really high, like mm. a part of Uganda, yeah. um, where transmission intensity is really, really high, mm. you can have a large number of people infected and that can really get up to 3,000. I think where that changes is that quite a number of people are 
semi-immune or partially immune. Yeah. But children aren't, right. especially children under five. And pregnant women, especially in their first pregnancy, literally are not as immune as they were when they were not pregnant. Right. And so that population is really susceptible mm. to malaria. Yeah, and to spreading it to others. And evidently. spreading it to others. Yeah. And so this is a disease of enormous proportions mm. and one that we've got to keep in mind that the vector is critical in that transmission cycle. Yeah. And breaking that cycle requires, you know, thinking about the mosquito, thinking about the parasite, and obviously thinking about human behavior. Yeah. So with that little primer on malaria out of the way, I'd like to turn now to the various approaches that we are taking or potentially could take to reduce the damage that malaria does around the world. So later in the interview, we're going to come back to malaria consortium's kind of core existing programs. But when I asked around, listeners were particularly keen to hear about some new possible ways that we might be able to reduce the damage that malaria does. One of those is malaria vaccines, in which there's been ongoing research for, for many decades. And there have actually been some kinds of recent announcements about progress that have, I think, really caught some people's attention and made it kind of a, a hot topic, given it a bit of buzz. Yeah, tell us, what's the state of the art in malaria vaccination today? When I was training to be a malariologist, mm. I did not expect in my lifetime to see a WHO recommendation mm. for malaria vaccine because the the development of a vaccine is quite complex. Right. I guess it's so because the, the pathogen here is a prokaryote? Oh, no, sorry. It's a, it's, it's, it's a tiny organism rather than a virus or a bacteria. And yes. so it's like quite a different beast to try to tackle with a vaccine, not something that we've really had vaccines against in the past. Precisely. It's a, yeah. it's a protozoan. Protozoan, okay. It's yeah. a protozoan, and it's got various stages within its host. Mm. So the first stage is a sporozoid that gets into the skin and into the bloodstream. Mm and then goes into the liver. And that stage is called the pre-erythrocytic stage. Mm. That's the stage that occurs before it gets into the red blood cell. And then it gets into the red blood cell and has merozoites and then causes some of the damage that mm. is seen as symptoms, neither complicated malaria or severe malaria. So that's an asexual stage. So yeah. it's a merozoid and then you, it continues to propagate. And then you have a couple of those that then form gametocytes, creating a sexual stage that can be transmitted by a mosquito that picks it up during a meal. Yeah. So those stages have different proteins and antigens. Right. So you can't target it at every stage. You've kind of got to pick one, I guess. And yes. it's only going to be at that stage for so long. Exactly. So yeah. you, you have questions, which stage do you pick? Mm. And then which antigen or which protein in that stage will be similar across the potential different subtypes of strains that a child will face or a, a host will face in that particular context. Yeah. And so RTSS, which is the malaria vaccine that WHO recommended in October 2021, mm. which was really a milestone and historic, is a pre-erythrocytic vaccine. It prevents the infection of the red blood cells okay. by the parasite that is released from the liver. Yeah. So RTSS is the malaria vaccine that WHO recommended in October 2021, yeah. which is a historical watershed moment for mm. us mm. because it, for the first time, introduces a malaria vaccine into the toolkit. But I think it also sends a positive message to manufacturers and researchers who are working on creating a malaria vaccine that mm. is 
highly efficacious. R21 is a pre-erythrocytic vaccine that is currently going through phase one, two trials, and it has a potential to either be as effective as RTSS or potentially even more effective, Mm. but we still have to wait for the phase three trials. But hopefully in the next, I would say, five years, we should have an alternative to RTSS in the shape of R21. And I guess uh, we should say that the the effectiveness of RTSS is unfortunately only about 30%, I think, in the trials where they've tried to, in in terms of saving children's lives from malaria, even if they have to get multiple shots, I think, and even then it's only 30% effective. So it's certainly not a silver bullet, uh, regrettably. RTSS, yes, isn't a silver bullet. In the malaria vaccine implementation project, the pool data showed a 29% reduction Mm. in hospitalizations due to severe malaria. But that's an effect size Mm. that we cannot ignore. I would definitely rather have it than not have it. Yes, (laughs) that's that's an effect size that we cannot ignore. And we have seen in the past, in the research around NETS initially in the trials, showed a 45% reduction Mm. in clinical episodes of malaria. I think something like about an 18% reduction in all-cause mortality. Mm. Um, With SMC, we've seen a 70% reduction in clinical episodes and a similar 70% reduction in hospitalizations due to severe malaria. Mm. So we've got to think about the complementarity that these tools provide because no tool is absolutely effective. Mm. We are not able to rely on one tool alone. And by putting these tools in the right combination, one is able to then achieve a higher impact. So in the malaria vaccine implementation project, the combination of RTSS and NETS meant that 90% of the children who were vaccinated Mm. were actually protected from malaria because there were some children who were not being protected from NETS who got protected by RTSS. And achieving a 90% coverage of protection for children is impressive. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm immediately starting to think about this in terms of cost effectiveness. So given that we unfortunately have a limited budget here and like can't provide even the basic things that we would really want to everyone who's who's vulnerable to malaria. So with seasonal malaria chemo prevention, we're talking six dollars per child per year, and I think with nets, we're talking only like five or six dollars to deliver a net, which uh, then protects potentially multiple children for multiple years. Yes. How much does it cost per vaccine delivery? Because I think from memory, it was three shots. I think delivered over the course of a year. So three initial shots, yeah. the primer doses, mm. and then you have a fourth shot um, mm. eighteen months after the third dose, and then depending um, a group used a seasonal approach to vaccination Mm. where they then gave an annual dose before the the rainy season. So you could say, on average, four doses. And I think the the estimates, the model estimates have used a cost of $5 per dose. So roughly, you're talking about $20 to $25 to have a child covered Mm. with RTSS. Yeah. So... It's going to be somewhat less cost effective than these other options, basically in terms of life save per dollar, probably most of the time. But it's still going to be like look very good in the in the in the broader scheme of liberal health interventions. Is that is that kind of the the bottom line? Yes, yes, yeah. I, I think that would probably be the bottom line. Yeah, but I think this study that the London School and their partners did in the seasonal use of RTSS yeah. achieved 
really impressive results when they combined RTSS with seasonal malaria chemo prevention. Yeah. They were able to achieve a, a, a 70% reduction in mm. hospitalizations due to severe malaria yeah. and a 73% reduction in deaths associated with malaria. Yeah. And so the gain yeah. that one can make if RTSS is introduced appropriately in the right context mm. could be substantial and could justify mm. the potential increase in cost of delivery. My initial thought was that, well, if you already have the NETS and the SMC, then that would reduce the like life save per dollar of, of, of the vaccine because you have reduced already the number of deaths by 80 or 90% or something like that if you have a reasonably high distribution of both of those. I suppose a different take on it, though, that might be familiar to people now because of COVID is this idea of kind of herd immunity that kind of if you can get uh, like all of these different layers of protection that stop people from getting sick and therefore from passing it on to others, that you might almost be able to get local elimination of malaria from an area that would then have like spillover benefits to all kinds of people, even those who aren't using the NETS or the, or the SMC. With the way that malaria spreads, is there the possibility of kind of uh, eliminating the disease locally through a sort of herd immunity effect? It is plausible. Yeah. It is plausible. But, but hard. But hard. Yeah. Just, it, just because of that R uh, yes. being so high. Yeah. It, it is plausible, but rather difficult. And what we've seen with NETS is that if you do achieve high coverage with NETS, hmm. there is a benefit to those who may not have a NET. Right. And it could be similar for, for some of the other tools. But it is, I think, the interface of the mosquito and the fact that achieving herd immunity does require being exposed repeatedly to different Sanopheles, but even the substrains within, strains, yeah. sorry, Plasmodium falciparum and the substrains within Plasmodium falciparum. So I think herd immunity comes at a cost. I see. And that cost is you've got to have repeated episodes. Those mm. episodes have to be consistent. And it also depends at what age you're exposed. You know, with children, their immune systems are not fully developed. Yeah. So the immune system has to develop. It's very different from an adult. So a child has got to have its immune system grow and mature. And yeah. during that time, they will experience episodes of malaria. So it's a combination of things. And I mm. think relying on potential herd immunity will have a cost that I would say most households would want to avoid if they had the option to yeah. have access to interventions that could be um, potentially um, effective. None of these tools is absolute because hmm. we're not dealing with a virus where you can give a vaccination and you know achieve high efficacy or effectiveness. Yeah. So even with nets, even with seasonal malaria chemo prevention, even with indoor residual spraying, even with RTSS, the malaria vaccine, there will be some exposure to parasites that will give the opportunity or the risk for people to get exposed to malaria. And so I think bringing these tools together mm. so that you have even more effective prevention so that kids or pregnant women are not getting ill, or if they do get ill, they have the right tests and the right treatments so that it doesn't progress into severe disease, but yeah. also it shortens the amount of time that the parasites are present for a mosquito to then mm. pick the mosquito and then pass that on to someone else. Yeah. So being able to shorten that time, I think will have an overall benefit 
reducing transmission intensity, but also in us aiming for a malaria elimination target that I think most people now want to achieve so that it's no longer just about controlling, but that we're really looking at a vision for a malaria-free world. Yeah. I guess this kind of layered defense will be, again, because of COVID, quite familiar to people, because we found even the vaccines, even with the boosters, it's not really enough with, with the latest strain. So we have to do that. And then on top of that, for people who do get really sick, we have to have these drugs that then on top of that, again, reduce the mortality rate by 50% or 75%. And even that's not perfect. So COVID's still a problem. But kind of in combination, we've managed to bring down you know, mortality by 95% or something like that by layering on both the vaccines and the better treatments. Is malaria vaccine research a neglected target for additional funding, or is it the kind of thing that is like already quite a few people are working on it? Malaria vaccine development is neglected. Okay. It's taken over 30 years for RTSS, but we know it's been complex because mm. there's so much that goes into developing a vaccine, identifying the antigens, testing the antigens, finding the right dose, the right delivery strategies. There's, there's lots of of R&D that's involved and investment. Presently, on average, there are about 10 clinical trials that are registered on clinicaltrials.org, where yeah. most of the clinical trials, whether it's a, a vaccine or a drug, mm. are registered. Mm. And on average, there are 10 trials registered per year. Yeah. 10 trials for a disease that causes so much. Yeah, 200 million cases a year. I think that number needs the to go The ratio is not great. The, yeah. the ratio is not great. And currently, I think in the pipeline, there's something like 18 or 20 different vaccine candidates that are going through testing, some targeting the sporozoite to really reduce the capacity of the sporozoite to cause disease by infecting the red blood cell. Mm. Then you have some vaccines that are blood stage vaccines that really are trying to ensure that the merozoites don't get established in the red blood cells, but the red blood cells themselves do not get destroyed in a manner that, that we know happens when you have malaria. Yeah. And then you have transmission blocking vaccines that prevent the gametocyte from being taken up by the mosquito. Mm. Or if it is taken up by the mosquito, it's not able to establish itself in the mosquito and then form a sporozoite, which then continues the cycle. Yeah. So with those various stages, you have, on average, something like, I would say, five to six different types of candidates yeah. that are being um, looked at. And then some of those vaccines use a subunit of an antigen, the succumsporozoite protein yeah. that is within the sporozoite. RTSS uses a subunit of that. Mm. And then you have some vaccines that use the sporozoite and attenuate it or inactivate it so that when that is given, it generates an immune response that the body can then remember for the next time a viable sporozoite appears. Hmm. So with this variety of antigens, yeah. <laughs> with these different types of vaccines, yeah. for example, if one wants to eliminate, hmm. you probably need a transmission blocking vaccine. That is probably the most neglected aspect of vaccine development hmm. because it's very complex. And then blood stage vaccines, all right, we don't have any that is close to phase three. They're largely phase one trials. And so we, we still probably have another 10 years before we see a viable candidate that's within the blood stage group. There is one that is being tested for malaria in pregnancy that sort of prevents. What happens is that the parasite causes the red blood cells mm. 
to stay within the placenta, the connection between the fetus and, uh-huh. and the mother. And so there is a vaccine that is actually now being tried that can prevent those cells mm. from going into the placenta uh, and sequestering and preventing oxygen as well as uh, energy from being transmitted from the uterus to the child. But vaccine development is neglected. Yeah. And for a malaria-free future, we do need a healthy pipeline of vaccines. And we do need to shorten the period from the actual identification of the antigen all the way up to the use of that or the recommendation by WHO and its use. Yeah. Um, from so, the COVID pandemic, yeah. all the efforts that have gone to developing the vaccine against COVID, we've seen some spin-offs for malaria vaccine development. So there is now some effort on the RNA technology being used, including the, the DNA technology being used to identify mm. a vaccine for malaria. And companies like BioNTech that were instrumental in developing the RNA vaccines against COVID have committed to doing that work. Yeah, possibly this is a result of underfunding. The the RTSS vaccine, the best and I guess only approved one that we have at the moment, was first developed, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s. And then it wasn't like a a proper clinical trial wasn't finished until 2015. And it's still kind of in this pilot phase where it's not being scaled up on a huge level. It's being tested on populations to see what what impact does it have on a large scale. But it's not kind of a product that one can easily go go and buy. It's not kind of being commercialized on a mass scale. Very long time. I with COVID nineteen, I, I was uh, up in arms about the vaccines kind of getting delayed by regulatory caution by like weeks or months. And here we're talking about a thirty year period during which this people are yeah is <laughs> kind of going from the very early development phase to figuring out whether it's good. It feels like slow. <laughs> Am I understanding this right? <laughs> I don't Maybe. want to criticize the people in this area, yeah. but it's like what's yeah. what's going on? We can't criticize because I think they really did make the effort and yeah. they could have given up, but yeah. they didn't. So I think they have to be acknowledged, the scientists, but also the funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that was really instrumental in ensuring that, that this moved forward, as well as the research that GSK did initially and organizations like PATH who continue to work with GSK on its development. The work has been complex. Yeah. So it was scientifically difficult. Scientifically yeah. difficult. Just yeah. getting the right antigen and getting just understanding what the dosing just mm. what dose is required yeah. for you to be able to achieve the right immune response. Yeah. And then there's also the markers of the immune response. What's your marker, right? Because You mean you want to want to be able to check whether someone's developed immunity? Yes, you want to check. But also if you have this antigen, mm. all right, or what is the likely response in the immune system that then translates into an efficacious or an effective tool? Yeah. So the science has been complex. Yeah. And then you have the research, which mm. goes through, you know, ethical approval. Then you have the regulatory aspects that also take their time. But I think it's a lesson. And I hope a lesson that we have learned from and that the next generation of malaria vaccines will take shorter. And I think R21, for example, is probably going to take a shorter period of time because of some of the lessons that have been learned from RTSS and really trying to not only do the research, but also to think about the potential manufacture so that you don't have delays once you have 
approvals from either the drug authorities or any of the regulatory bodies, yeah. you can really go straight into the manufacturer mm. and then um, scale that up. So I think with RTSS, there's been some lessons and I mm. think we've seen R21 is benefiting from those. But I think all of us hope that the what we have seen for the pandemic, COVID, yeah. is that you can... Turn things around fast. Turn things around fast. Yeah. And sometimes for these major emergencies, some of the research needs to be done concurrently. Let's push on from vaccines uh, and talk for a bit about different methods of, of, of vector control, which is to say uh, getting rid of the damn mosquitoes that, are, that carry malaria. As I understand it, like, you know, 70 years ago or maybe 80 years ago, people were getting malaria in the American South, but that has largely been ended. I think 200 years ago, people were getting malaria in East Asia, in Europe as well. I think even in England, I think 300 years ago, uh, malaria was uh, was endemic. And I think the primary way that that's been dealt with is getting rid of the mosquitoes or, or like primarily it was vector control that largely eliminated malaria from I think about a quarter of the world used to have malaria and now basically doesn't. Why can't we just use those same methods to that, that have worked for you know a quarter of the the Earth's uh, surface on the remaining quarter where where malaria is is still quite common? The distribution of mosquitoes hmm. around the world differs, right? And in sub-Saharan Africa, the Anopheles gambi complex is the most efficient transmitter of malaria. It's far more efficient than the mosquitoes that were in Asia that were in. Uh, the UK in the South, mm. or Europe, or in Americas. And it is so efficient that you just need yeah. a couple of mosquitoes to establish transmission in a setting. I see. And they don't need a lot of breeding sites. They need very few breeding sites in which to establish themselves. So it's basically this difference in the species of mosquitoes that what's possible, what was possible in England is no, not at all possible in Congo. Yes. And then you have other variables, temperature, yeah. below 16 degrees centigrade, the parasite, mm. its development in the mosquito is slower mm. than at 25 degrees or at 30 degree, degrees centigrade, where the parasite in the mosquito will really develop quite rapidly and have a shorter period in which it then can be transmitted through the mosquito's salivary glands. So there are environmental variables as well, hmm. um, temperature, rainfall, the amount of rain. And I think what has been, a, I think, a consequence of economic development in those locations is that people have then been able to put in place good drainage, build up cities, and get rid of the breeding sites. Yeah. And much of Africa and some parts of Asia are still quite rural, where you do have a large proportion of the population in rural settings or semi-urban settings. And there's breeding sites, they're close together, and during the transmission season, the mosquito can very rapidly establish transmission in those settings. And then from an epidemiological perspective, there's something called transmission potential. Transmission potential is the ability for malaria to be reestablished yeah. in a setting where it has been reduced. So even in sub-Saharan Africa, as one is reducing the burden of disease, for example, the number of children who are dying, coming down, the number of people who are exposed, the potential for malaria to resurface continues to exist for quite a long while. I see. So if anything interrupts 
the control. It could be like suddenly you have floods, you have displacements or defunding, funding. um, You don't do your indoor residual spraying on time. Then quite rapidly comes all back. It it comes all back. Yeah. And that transmission potential differs in location. And also it's because it's driven by the type of mosquito. It's driven by the vulnerability of the individuals in that setting. Um, You know, children under five, pregnant women, and then you also have the receptability of the environment, as I mentioned, temperature. Those variables all come together to sort of create either high transmission potential or low transmission potential. Yeah. I think this yeah, might be worth uh, talking about this a little bit more because I think I've carried around this misunderstanding, this, this misconception that the U.S. managed to get rid of malaria in Florida. Uh, and I guess that was, I was thinking it was partly, you know, they just like urbanized more. They, they put down more concrete. People moved into urban areas. So probably just as, you know, as Uganda becomes richer and it urbanizes, probably they'll just get rid of malaria in the same way. It sounds like that will have some effect, but it's not going to eliminate malaria the same way that it has elsewhere because the mosquitoes are different and it's just not, not so easy to get rid of these ones. There's also these specific mosquitoes now that are spreading malaria in cities, right? And I imagine that they maybe evolve over time to become even more effective at living in urban environments and more resilient to people trying to change the environment to get rid of water and so on. And that could present an ongoing impediment to vector control. Yes. There's a model, I can't remember the author, where they've really modeled the potential impact that economic development as well as urbanization um, could have on malaria elimination. And with their models, um, you are not, at least their findings were that it's not likely Mm. that you can eliminate malaria in sub-Saharan Africa by simply urbanizing and building up partly because of, as I said, these variables, the, the, the vector capacity of the mosquito, yeah, the climate, um, the climate the, all these variables. So it, urbanization and economic development will have a contribution and an important contribution. But I think the reliance on effective interventions that are used consistently over time and that continue to remain effective, I think, um, has to be emphasized. Okay, so if we're not going to be able to get rid of mosquitoes that way, just in the natural course of events, um, what do you think of the idea of using gene drives to eliminate the specific species of mosquitoes that carry the malaria parasite? Because, yeah, I think there's an organization called Target Malaria who's working on research to figure out where this might be possible and, and whether it's a good idea. Basically, the idea is here, I think you release a bunch of mosquitoes that have been genetically engineered such that like whenever they mate with uh, a partner, all of the Children, for example, could, could either be infertile or they could all be males or all be females or something like that. And then that means that if that happens every generation, then after a series of uh, replication cycles, they all die out because there's, there's no females or no, no, no males left. And so largely the species will go extinct locally. This does have the implication that if you release some of these mosquitoes, and as long as, say, they don't evolve to break this gene drive technology, that this could spread globally, basically, and eliminate that species of mosquito completely which has proven slightly controversial with, with, with some people. Yeah, do you, do you want to talk about uh, gene drives and uh, target malaria? Yeah, gene drives are a novel intervention hmm. that um, is, certainly has a lot of potential. There's still a long way to go. There's quite a bit of research, especially epidemiological research that needs to be done to understand the potential impact. But I think the technology itself yeah. is very powerful. And I think... Th- therein lies some of the risk. It's almost too powerful. Huh? It's probably, yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, of the gene drive systems, there's sort of low threshold gene drives and high threshold gene drives. 
So with high threshold gene drives, you need a large number of mosquitoes Mm. released into the wild to have the impact. Mm. And then with low threshold gene drives, you need a few mosquitoes to be released into the wild and really propagates itself. And then within those, you have some gene drive that help that once introduced will suppress the population of mosquitoes or insects. And then you have some gene drives that will modify elements within the mosquito or the insect to cause it to not be as efficient or not able to perpetuate a particular um, attribute. So I think in terms of the gene drives for mosquitoes, Anopheles specifically, is that really it's a low threshold type of gene drive Mm. and one that will cause suppression because of this double sex gene that creates a generation of infertile offspring. And that continues to perpetuate itself until you actually sort of wipe out that particular species. And I think the studies that have been done in cages so far suggest that that is possible. Yeah. And so it is certainly a very powerful tool. Yeah. I guess the question that we will all have, and, you know, we see this in, 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 you know, in nets and we see it in some of the other tools is what will be the acceptance mm. of national governments or communities mm. to a technology that can be complex to understand? Yeah, I see. The minute you get into genetically modified technology, it raises eyebrows. It raises eyebrows, and you'll have adopters, but you'll also have the skeptics. And I think that's one thing Target Malaria is conscious of, mm-hmm. and they've spent a huge amount of time working with communities, working with members of parliament in some of these countries to understand what the legislative framework mm. is and what kind of information the decision makers require. Mm. for a policy to be adopted yeah. in terms of gene drive mosquitoes or gene drive insects in general. Yeah. And then communities, how will they perceive these genetically modified mosquitoes? Yeah. And I think they have, you know, they've really done some very good community engagement work, some studies. And I think they're starting to show that there are ways that one can communicate with both communities, but also decision makers mm. that can potentially make this adoptable. That's one element. Now, with this type of technology, you can't simply say I'm releasing it in one country. Right. And it's not going to spread to the next country. It's probably going to spread everywhere eventually. Exactly. So not only do you need a country adoption, you probably need regional adoption. Yeah. So if you release it in West Africa, then what is ECOWAS going to think about it? If you release it in Southern Africa, what mm. is SADA going to think about it? Mm. All right. So you have all these regional bodies, the African Union, etc. What is going to be their perception of gene drive, genetically modified mosquitoes that are released? Because you really need the governance framework and the legislative framework that is regional rather than just country specific. Yeah, totally. Right. And that requires you to also be able to engage with all these communities. I'm I'm not saying that this tool isn't powerful. This is Mm. a really powerful tool. But I Mm. think in its power lies some of its risk. And I think you have then the question, how do you turn it off? Either when you don't need it any longer, or as we know, with catastrophic risks in the future, something goes wrong and we don't expect it to. But if it does cross over, yeah. into other insects unintentionally, mm. 
how do you turn it off? Right, yeah. And so I think there's the technology, but I think we also need the cross-country collaboration and governance. And we do need a good understanding as to what will happen if we have unintended consequences mm. and we need to turn this technology off. Yeah. I, I think there is a way of turning it off, as I understand. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't, didn't look into this, but I think basically you would release new mosquitoes with like a gene drive, gene drive that like cuts out and deactivates the other gene drive, basically. Yes. So there is an option, yeah. but it's like, it's challenge. Oh, it's like it's something we haven't done before. Exactly. So you need the two happening almost concurrently. Right. Yeah. Because this technology is certainly going to, I mean, let's see what happens when it goes into, you know, uh, larger scale trials in different locations, but it yeah. certainly has potential. Yeah. Um, and it could be an important game changer, maybe in the next 10, 20 years. But I think you do need the investment mm. in understanding the, the how to mitigate some of the risks of the technology so that we are able to describe both the technology as well as the mitigation of those risks to communities and governments who need to be on board yeah. for this to be introduced and have um, the impact that it could achieve. Yeah. A lot of people worry about unintended consequences here or they're nervous about this technology. I think that that's, a, that's understandable. I'm a bit more of a risk taker, maybe. And, and I feel a bit more like, I, I just want to say, to be frank, we're talking about like driving very specific species of mosquitoes extinct globally. Yes. We're trying yes. to get rid of them yeah. uh, because unfortunately they're the ones that carry this parasite. However, we would in the process save, you know, 600,000 children's lives every year, prevent 200 million cases of this like very unpleasant illness. It could be like something that really does like end malaria or at least like dramatically re reduce malaria. So the, so the benefits we're talking about here are very large. And I think some people hear this and they're like, oh, you're getting rid of all mosquitoes. To be honest, I'm not sure that I would be that against getting rid of mosquitoes. <laughs> Maybe there'd be like other insects that could fill that niche that aren't as annoying as mosquitoes. However, that's not actually what's being suggested because there's tons of other species of mosquitoes that don't carry the, the malaria parasite. And so don't have this problem. And likely, given that they are an extremely similar insect, they would probably just colonize the same niche in the environment that the Anopheles mosquitoes and so on are currently filling. So to me, it does just seem like the benefits greatly outweigh the costs on their face. So I would kind of like to see maybe a bit more hustle about figuring out, like, how can, how can we do this? And to some extent, it surprises me that there hasn't been, say, one country that's been like, we want to get rid of malaria and we're just going to do this. And, <laughs> and then that ha does have effects on other countries and maybe they don't like it. But it's something where like a single actor can potentially do this for the whole world uh, if, if they're willing to be unilateralist about it. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that that hasn't happened or that there's no proposal or that it doesn't seem like that's likely to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, Rob, there's like 3,500 species of mosquitoes. So getting rid of 40 specific species i mean it's as you know with, with, with gene drives you you have to go species, by, species by species right yeah certainly i think the, the the benefits i mean there's four billion people at risk of malaria yeah right i think if we ask those four billion people about how they would feel getting rid of these vectors i suspect they will be keen not to be at risk of malaria so the benefits certainly in the short term and probably in the long term because of the value of a malaria-free world. Yeah. Remember, it's not just the disease, but it's also the economic benefits yeah. that will be had if we are able to achieve a malaria-free world. Hmm. So I think there's huge benefits. And like you, I would be certainly a, 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 a proponent of the risks. Yeah. But that's you and me. Yeah. 
we've still got to recognize that national governments, yes, and I, and I suspect they will see the urgency, they will see the need, but at the same time, we have to recognize that they have to go through their own legislative process. It's not just going to be a Ministry of Health policy, all right? This is about potential. This it's a is, big deal. This is a big deal, mm. right? And I think we have to recognize that countries will have to understand both the benefits and understand the risks and providing the right evidence mm. and at least a sense of what the potential mitigations are for the risks mm. would really go a long way in the fast adoption of the technology so that we don't have a technology that we've shown, we've proven, and then we spend another five years trying to get it adopted. Yeah. I think what we all want is that by the time this technology is available, yeah. all right, countries are really just... Everyone's it, on board. Everyone's on board, mm. engaged communities, they're ready, and the potential can be achieved. Yeah. I mean, the history of malaria... All right, seems to be that you take 15 years from a WHO recommendation yeah. to a potential scale up of a tool. Mm. It happened with NETS. You know, we've struggled with IPTI, mm. we've struggled with IPTP, we've been fortunate with SMC Web 2012 recommendation made in 2022, 2021, where almost 20, 2020, we've got to 31 million kids out yeah. of 40 million. So there's this long period yeah. between a recommendation. And scale up. Yeah. We don't want that to happen with the next generation of tools that are so powerful, especially one like Gene Drive. Yeah, I think zooming out, I'm kind of impressed and glad that we've managed to coordinate so much as to like not use this technology before we're confident that's, that it's a good idea and we've like found a way to undo it if we decide that it's a mistake. And yeah, it's it's impressive that we're sufficiently cautious about a new technology that 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 could be used for harm, I suppose, or, or could accidentally cause a lot of harm. I guess I suspect that in this specific case, it is a mistake. And that when we do end up using it, I suspect that people will question why didn't we do it earlier? Because I suspect that it will go fine and a lot of lives will be saved and it'll be great. But I hope that we could do that groundwork of persuading people and talking to regulators and getting governments on board and getting the scientific community on board uh, as, as, as soon as possible. It seems like the most likely scenario is that in 50 years' time, probably malaria will be largely gone because of these gene drives, uh, maybe, or at least like more likely than not possibly in 30 years, we could we could be there. It seems like that maybe should affect Malaria Consortium's strategy. If there's the possibility of elimination using this other, te other technology at some point, it slightly shortens the time horizon that we're thinking about. Like, well, how long do we have to use the chemo prevention? How long do we have to use the nets? It maybe increases the, the, the desire to deliver things immediately now and maybe like less investment in like very long-term R&D projects that may not pay off until, until gene drives perhaps have already been implemented. Is that a possibility? I would look at it from... The short term and the longer term. Yeah. The near termism and the long termism. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that in the next, even with gene drives, with, with some of the other tools, the horizon is probably 10, 20 years out before mm. we potentially could see a recommendation and adoption in some countries. The tools that we currently have, mm. we should be maximally achieving their potential. Yeah. Such that the addition of these new technologies yeah. will take a shorter period for us to achieve the goal of malaria elimination mm. and potentially malaria eradication. And keep in mind that there's falciparum and there's vivax malaria, right? There's two. Too but different, yeah. potentially with gene drives, you could be targeting both, right. All right, with that technology. Whereas I think with some of the other technologies, you're looking at a situation where you still have the hypnozoids that mm. 
as I mentioned, with Vivax, we remain in the liver. Yeah. And then, you know, six months later, they could pop out. One year later, they can pop out. And I think you can even get to something like two to three years later. And then the... Proceed the, things. It, it, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think in the short term, I think our approach needs to be to really maximize and achieve the potential so that we are bringing the burden of disease. Because mm. what you want is that you want more locations with less malaria expanding yeah. or more locations with lots of malaria coming down, right? So you either bring high transmission down yeah. or you have malaria-free locations and you're mm. expanding those. Mm. Now, I tend to look at it from the, you have a high transmission intensity and you want to bring it down yeah. such that when you now have these new tools, you are at a transmission intensity and a transmission potential that these new tools are more likely to then achieve malaria elimination, eradication in a shorter period of time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. This might not be something that you've looked at, but do you know how long it might take potentially between releasing, you know, decide, you know, a country decides that it's going to implement gene drives to try to eliminate specific species of mosquitoes? How long then until it is gone in that country and then potentially gone across all of Africa if it spreads widely enough? We could probably do some maths on like how, how fast is the replication cycle and how long does it take to spread? Yeah, you need I think to do probably, some maths. Probably would take, yeah, it would take, take a little while. But, yeah. uh, it will uh, take a little while. Um, yeah. But I think the recent, the recent work that the group have looked at was, I think when they released in this large cage, within a 12-month period, they were yeah. actually able to see a, a complete suppression of that population. But yeah. I think when, it, when you take these things out into the on wild, the continental level, yeah. it's different. Yeah, we sure. haven't done that it's modeling. That yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen that modeling done, but you could envisage a situation where, if the gene or if the specific drives are able to maintain themselves, yeah, where you could, you know, see a, a rapid decline in the mosquito population. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll stick up some links uh, to to more stuff about gene drives and about tiger malaria for people who are who are keen to learn more. Changing topic. How promising do you think? attractive toxic sugar baits are this is a question from the audience uh, so this is an alternative means of getting rid of mosquitoes which is uh, i guess having a combination of kind of a poison for mosquitoes with some sugar basically that they go and eat and then they and then they die and you can hang this up in a house uh, i think i've i've actually been somewhere that had uh, one of these but i think it was for flies rather than mosquitoes but, yeah yeah uh, what, what do you think there's still quite a bit of research that's needed on um attractive toxic sugar baits mm. um before you can start to do that comparison Okay. All right. Between that and nets or that and some of the other tools. Yeah. There still needs to be epidemiological studies mm. um, that, that that happen. Again, from a malaria epidemiology view or perspective, yeah. again, it, it has potential, but I think we have to wait for the data. Okay. There's still got to be some epidemiological studies before yeah. we can start to draw those comparisons and those conclusions. Yeah. You know, I, I often have to think about tools and their risks so that I don't get surprised. And one of the things that has to be contemplated is... They kill other insects, right? Yeah, Yeah. potentially, but there is an effort to make sure that or to reduce the potential for other insects. Hmm. But then once you then need to dispose of the baits, what happens, Uh, what's the disposal, could some of the toxic ingredients affect hmm. other insects that, again as an unintended consequence. Yeah. Um, so how do you, again, deploy, create acceptance, um, and then when you no longer need those tools, what happens? And how does it affect communities? How does it affect the environment? And I think those are some of the questions that, as an implementer, 
I would want some answers to because that helps with the adoption. What we want to avoid is situations where we have tools that have potential waiting for scale up. Mm. We really want to have a situation where a tool is proven to work, a recommendation is made, and we can rapidly go into scale up. Again, the similar story that we've had with seasonal malaria chemo prevention. Yeah. You mentioned earlier there's this other approach of vector control, which is uh, you know spraying a house with insecticide such that if the mosquitoes land on the wall, then they pick up this insecticide and they die. As I understand it, that's not something that Malaria Consortium promotes in particular. Is that because it's just not a good fit for the organization or because it's like maybe not the most cost-effective way of, of preventing malaria? Indoor residual spraying is highly effective. Mm and um, does have a very important role to play within a comprehensive malaria program. We, in the organization, at present, it isn't a good fit because it really requires a logistic delivery platform, working Mm. obviously very closely with with governments. You need to have sprayers, you know. So we've not, I mean, we've attempted it in the past. We've done it in the past. Okay, yeah. But we've not, it's not been part of our approach or strategy Currently, yeah, we are, however, involved in advising governments on the kinds of insecticides to use in their IRS programs. Okay. So one of the programs we work on with um, PMI US government funding, mm. led by um, Apt Associates, a, one of our partners, mm. is that we provide technical assistance to the programs. We look at the evidence. We work with them to develop their integrated vector management plans, their insecticide resistance management plans Mm. that allow them to make choices as to which insecticide to use in which location. So on the technical side, in terms of advice, we are heavily involved, but in terms of the delivery, we aren't. Yeah, it's not doesn't have a lot of complementarity with delivering it's, pills, I guess. It, yeah. it, it, no, no, it's 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 very different. <laughs> it's really different. But we have the capacity to do so if we want it. Yeah. But we don't feel it's a good fit. But it certainly is a cost effective and a valuable tool within the toolbox. All right. So we've now spoken a bunch about two emerging ways of tackling malaria, that is vaccines and and these new forms of vector control. I'd like to come back for a bit and actually just learn more about malaria and its treatments because there's a fair bit of stuff that I think is probably fairly fundamental that that I don't have a, have a fantastic grasp of. So if you're right, got malaria now, I think the classic symptoms are kind of nausea and vomiting and really bad fever, right? Yes. Are, are there any other important symptoms that people should have in mind? I mean, I guess you feel like total rubbish from what I've heard. Yeah, so you get fever, you have yeah. vomiting, nausea, some people get aches, you know, muscle aches, mm. joint pains. You could have sort of drowsiness. Yeah. Then um, it can then become more severe where you actually start to lose consciousness. Mm. You're very weak. Some children can't even sit up. The vomiting, you know, if it's persistent, you know, you, you really lose energy. And then really very severe malaria, you start to to, to get pale. And that requires you know, real rapid reaction. I see. Yeah. And I guess people are familiar now with long COVID, these like long lasting, or like how, you know, for weeks, months, possibly years, uh, you can have these enduring effects uh, where you just like aren't as energetic and able to do things as as you were before. That's an issue with malaria as well, right? That's you, you just, ongoing lethargy. Yes. You, you, there are some sequelae hmm. that can happen, um, especially with severe malaria. Um, there's some neurological sequelae 
where cognitive function is impaired. Even memory can be impaired as a result of a combination of the disease. And sometimes previously when we were using quinine as the treatment, you can't even get a type of blindness called cortical blindness. Mm. Even motor function in children and adults can be compromised. And then you have cognitive function. Children can return back to school and not be as sharp and functional as they were before the episode of severe malaria. And then there is a trend that sometimes kids who've had severe malaria, they have an increased risk of getting it again. So multiple episodes of that can really be devastating to a child's cognitive function. I think you've you've had malaria, right? So you could speak to this from personal experience. Yes, I can speak to it from personal experience. But I think what I must stress is that I'm one of the lucky ones. Mm. Yes, I have had malaria. I probably could have died from malaria, if not the fact that my parents were quite vigilant. But I want to stress that I'm a lucky person. There's so many others who've had malaria and have not lived to see their fifth birthdays. Mm. WHO estimates that about 627 thousand deaths occurred of malaria in 2020. So for one of me, I want us to keep in mind the 627,000 who have not been able to survive and sit here. And so yes, malaria is personal because I've had it, but I've also seen mothers, parents struggle with the loss of their children. I've literally looked at children in front of me die because of the consequences of malaria. Yeah. So it's a personal thing, not because I've had it, but because of those who don't survive and those who have the neurological sequelae of this disease. And I think that for me is where I would stress the issues rather than myself, (laughs) who was very fortunate to survive it. So in terms of numbers, Hmm. I would just refer back to the World Malaria Report, which again um, points out that about 241 million cases of malaria that occurred in 2020. I've mentioned 627,000 deaths from malaria. 90% of that is in sub-Saharan Africa and largely children under five as well as pregnant women. Hmm. It's important to remember that malaria also impacts the survival of the fetus. You can have stillbirths and low birth for weight children. Right. And so it's a disease that really is really devastating. Mm. And WHO has also estimated that in the last 20, I think since 2000, in the last two decades, about 1.6 billion cases of malaria have been averted. By With all the interventions that we've used, NETS, SMC, you know, treatment, diagnostics, you know, the variety of things mm. that we've been able to deploy since the year 2000. And about 10.6 million deaths have been averted. Yeah. And you can imagine just those numbers, mm. all right, for a disease that, as I've stressed, is really a huge burden on the health of individuals, but also on the economies. Yeah. On average, malaria endemic countries grow slower by about 1.3% per annum. Why is that? I think malaria is a consequence of poverty, but Mm. malaria itself can contribute to poverty. I guess it's just like harming, like you were saying it destroys people's red blood cells and then I guess they're not as fit and energetic as they would have been otherwise, which makes it harder to just get anything done. Yes, so productivity. Productivity is affected in terms of adults, but also the time that households spend looking after sick children. Mm. So if a child is sick and needs to go to hospital, the mother will have to spend time 
literally she should be in the farm or she should be, you know, tending livestock, mm. but can't do that. And if the child gets severe malaria, the child may end up spending anywhere between five to seven days in the health facility. So there's time taken away from livelihoods. There's also a cost, the cost of treatment, the cost of diagnosis. Yeah. On average, a child in sub-Saharan Africa will experience anywhere up to about six episodes of malaria per annum. I think on average, it's about three. And yeah. so each of those episodes is a cost that mm. often is borne by the household, either because they go to the private sector or even if they're at accessing public sector services that may be free, there's the transportation costs. Right. And so the numbers start to add up. And if that child gets severe malaria, then the costs almost quadruple because mm. you're talking something of the order of about $20, even up to about $30 per episode because of the variety of things that they need to be able to either add to what is provided in the public sector or if they're in the private sector, those are the additional things that they're going to need to buy. And that's something like 5% of annual household income in some of these places, right? So we're yes. talking the equivalent of you know, many thousands of pounds, basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it really is a catastrophic cost. Oftentimes, they may not actually have that money and have to borrow or sell livestock mm. to generate that income. And it also causes delays because when households don't have that money, severe malaria is, is one of those diseases that you're really running against time. And so you really have to get that child into a suitable health facility that can manage severe disease as quickly as, quick as possible. possible. Yeah. And if you don't do that because you're waiting to sell a goat or a cow or wait for a decision how you can spend the last few dollars in the household, yeah. that really causes delays. And so you find that some of these kids come to the health facility when they're really very sick. A child could be in a coma or a child could be very anemic meaning that their red blood cells are not sufficient and don't have the capacity to carry the amount of oxygen that they require to grow healthily to grow healthily and operate physiologically yeah. and so children show up and they're really very ill and the clock really is ticking yeah what are the options for uh, preventing the spread of malaria malaria prevention currently relies heavily on insecticide treated nets yeah Insecticide-treated nets are basically a barrier that is put over a bed mm. and that provides a physical barrier to the mosquito, but also has a chemical that is within the lining of the net mm. that can either repel the mosquito or when the mosquito comes in contact, kill the mosquito. And so that's, I would say, one of the tools. Yeah. Then you have drug-based tools yeah. like seasonal malaria chemo prevention, hmm. where a medicine is given to a child and that medicine creates a therapeutic barrier. For example, when a mosquito introduces sporozoids, those sporozoids will not be able to be established in the child. Hmm. Or if that child has parasites when they're given malaria, uh, the, the medicine, then it will clear those parasites. So there's drug-based tools and then you have indoor residual spraying, which is the use of an insecticide that is put on the wall indoors that again has the ability to repel the mosquito, but it also has the ability to kill the mosquito if it comes in contact. If it lands on that surface. If it lands on that surface. Yeah. So we've relied heavily, I would say, on nets, insecticide-treated nets, on indoor residual spraying, 
and these drug-based tools. What about getting rid of kind of still water where um, mosquitoes can breathe? Is that an option as well? Level source management mm. is an option, as well as I would say, um, yes, getting rid of breeding sites. Mm. But it depends on the context. Yeah. An example is Anopheles gambi in mm. Africa just needs a footprint of rainwater right. to establish itself. It doesn't need a lot of water. It just has to be a puddle, a pool of fresh water where it can breed mm. and it can establish itself. And so it's very difficult in some locations to yeah. try to get rid of the breeding sites. Right. But then there are some locations where the breeding sites may be well-defined and you can use level source management where you put a larvae site that can get rid of the larvae or sort of constrain the larvae's development. I see in a lot of documents, people talking about clearing bushes, but mm. that really doesn't impact malaria. But you have situations where you do want households to avoid having empty containers, tires where there could be puddles, things like that, that can contribute to the number of breeding sites. Yeah, that makes sense. Sounds like there's, there's some species where it's easier to get rid of them by draining the sources of water because maybe they need like larger bodies of water for a longer period of time. But you're, you're saying there's particular ones that spread malaria that really don't require very much water and they don't require to be there for very long. So, this, so the idea of just like draining all the lakes is not going to not, not fix the problem. Anopheles gambi yeah. doesn't need a lot of water. Yeah. And I think there are different species. There's Anopheles gambi, there's Anopheles finestus, there's Anopheles arabiensis, and they tend to have slightly different breeding sites, but they also coexist. So you have situations where during the rainy season, Anopheles mm. gambi may be prevalent. And then during the drier season where mm. you have less water available, yeah. you have species like Anopheles finestus, or Anopheles arabiensis mm. that could establish itself. And so with those combinations, you can have year-long transmission yeah. because you have these mosquitoes that are able to breed in different conditions. Yeah, I see. As I've mentioned, I think the distribution of mosquitoes, mm. right, does contribute to the transmissibility of malaria. Yeah. Once when, when someone has malaria, like what are the treatment options and how effective are they? So malaria presents itself in different ways. Mm. Uncomplicated malaria, some call it simple malaria, but there's mm. no malaria that's simple, usually presents itself with a fever and children may have vomiting, they may have diarrhea, they may have other mild features. And when tested with a malaria test, mm. it could be a rapid malaria test or it could be microscopy. Mm. When they're positive, they are given a treatment called atomizinine-based combination therapy. Hmm. It's a combination of atomizinine hmm. and another antimalarial yeah. that when given together are more effective. In Asia and some other parts of the world, chloroquine is used for the treatment of Vivax malaria. And so between atomizinine-based combinations and chloroquine, one is able to treat falciparum and vivax malaria. So yeah. that's for what we term uncomplicated malaria. So if I got malaria tomorrow, and then I guess as soon as I had symptoms, I started taking one of these therapies, uh, how much is that going to reduce my symptoms or my risk of death? They're very effective. Atomizinine-based okay. combination therapies are highly effective. There are studies that go on to monitor the effectiveness. Hmm. And I'm sure your listeners have heard of atomizinine resistance, mm. which we know is establishing itself. 
But on average, atomizinin-based combination therapies are highly effective. For complicated malaria, which can present as child in coma or an adult who is not immune in a coma, Mm. a child who is anemic, not able to carry enough oxygen that Mm. they require, they often are very, very pale um, and will sometimes require a blood transfusion. So for severe malaria, one has to use an injectable form Mm. of etisonate, and that is either given intravenously or it is given as an injection in the muscle. It is more effective when it is given intravenously Mm. because it is very rapid acting. And within a couple of days, a child who was literally in coma um, could be up-sitting and breastfeeding or you know, interacting with the environment. Yeah. In addition to that, it's important that the referral of a child to the health facility is fast enough for Mm. that child to really get the benefits of being in a health facility. Yeah. And rectal atisinate is a tool that is used at the community level. It's a suppository of atisinate that can be given by a community health worker to a child who has danger signs, um, signs that I've said, a child who is, you know, um, very drowsy, a child who um, is has a very, very high temperature, or a child who's in coma, or as I've mentioned, a child who's really pale, the community health worker can give a rectal suppository that can start to initiate the treatment to buy time for that child to get to the health facility. Before they've deteriorated too Before far. they've deteriorated too far. Yeah. And then, as I mentioned, atisinate is given in the health facility, and there may be situations where blood transfusion is required Mm. because some of these children really are very pale, very anemic, and they need a blood transfusion to save their life. Yeah. So the seasonal malaria chemo prevention protocol, I didn't know this, but it's basically for like four months or so of the year when malaria is most common. Basically, a healthcare worker comes to a house, I guess possibly a school, basically, Every 30 days or so, they'll give the child two tablets, I think, on the first day and then leave them three more tablets, I think, to take on like days two, three, four. And so you have to do this on a monthly cycle every 30 days coming back. Basically, there's one tablet that you have to take once a month and then another another drug that you're taking for four days out of the month. And you have to do it on a fairly rigorous schedule. Is there anything to add to that? Yeah. So there are various approaches. What we've found in terms of equity is a door-to-door approach Mm. gives you equitable distribution. Mm. Um, But you also have a fixed point approach whereby you you can identify a fixed location. It could be a health facility, it could be a school, a location that is pretty safe and accessible for households to bring their children and then get treated. And as you've rightly said, we we do directly observe therapy for the first dose Mm. when the seasonal malaria chemoprevention medicine, sulfadoxin, pyramethamine, and amodiaquine are given on the first day. Mm. And then for the next two days, the caregiver is given the additional tablets, Mm. which are amodiaquine, that they then take on day two and day three. Got it. Nice. Just to reiterate something I said in the intro, um, yeah, GiveWell estimates that it costs about $6 or so to provide seasonal malaria chemo prevention to an extra kid for a year uh, through through Malaria Consortium. And that's including all of the costs that are involved. Uh, and they expect Malaria Consortium to save an extra life for about four and a half thousand dollars for each like incremental like four and a half thousand dollars that gets spent. A 2021 paper uh, from just last year um, that Malaria Consortium contributed to estimated that the cost of death averted ranged from uh, five hundred and thirty three dollars in Niger 
to $2,256 uh, in the Gambia. So that's like a, a couple of fold, a couple of fold uh, lower costs. I guess the give world tends to be a bit more pessimistic. They tend to do all of these adjustments to consider all of the ways that things could, could go wrong and like all of the incidental negative effects, uh, which tends to drive up the cost per life spent. But the basic story is we have all of these different ways of preventing the spread of malaria. We've got the nets, we've got the insecticides, we've got the chemo prevention, uh, we've got these treatments that people can take once they have malaria, and they're all pretty cheap. They're not like that difficult to distribute. One only audience member, I, I ask for questions as I, as, I, as I usually do on Twitter. This person was like, how is it that we have all of these options for preventing the spread of malaria? And it's not as if people don't know about malaria. It's, it's you know, the Global Fund, there's uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There's lots of different groups that are interested in this, as are governments around the world. Why is it that malaria is, I guess, the remaining, well, one of the remaining top like contagious diseases that does an enormous amount of damage, yet is so preventable? Why have we gotten rid of it? <laughs> Sorry, this sounds a little bit accusatory, but it's more, uh, yeah, it's just kind of, kind of interesting to think like, I guess there's always going to be some disease that's kind of the next one that's ready to be gotten rid of. But It is a valid question. Yeah. Yeah, we, we ask ourselves that question oftentimes, especially, mm. I think, more recently. But malaria is complex. Yeah. And the dynamic between the vector, the parasite, and the human host is complex. And we constantly have to keep referring back to that dynamic, but also the transmissibility of malaria. I guess uh, so. You could flip this on its head and say, given that uh, one person can infect three thousand, how is it that we've made any progress against this? Given that it can be phenomenally contagious. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think we do have to appreciate the success that we've made, mm. but we could do more. Yeah. I think what you will see from many of the figures is that the coverage gap still exists. Yeah. So for some of the interventions, for example, intermittent preventive treatment. For malaria in pregnancy, the coverage of that is pretty low. Mm. And we've not been able to achieve the high coverage that we've seen with seasonal malaria chemo prevention mm. or that we've seen with NETS in those tools. And, even, and the key issue is funding there primarily. Yeah. I yeah. mean, even with NETS, we still have a, a huge access use gap. But yeah. even then, we still have a gap in terms of those who could benefit from NETS. Yeah. So I think once there's a financial gap, yeah. the funding needs are still far greater than the funding that exists. Mm. And that means that we're not able to either achieve coverage because of numbers or that we're not able to put the appropriate systems around the tools, for example, the surveillance or the monitoring, as well as getting the commodities in at the right time yeah. and to really maximize the value of the tools that we're deploying. So I think there's a, there's a financial gap. Yeah. And then there is a use gap. Yeah. Engaging communities requires substantial effort, but also a relationship that is able to be based on trust and to be based on um, ownership. You know, sometimes we, one can make an assumption that you get nets and just take them to a community and they will use them. Right. That may not be the case if you've not done the engagement right. And if you've not really appreciated some of the barriers that the households could be facing, for example, hanging a net requires string and nails. Which people may not have on hand. People may not have a hand. Mm. Hanging a net sometimes predisposes that you have a bed to sleep on. Mm. There are situations where people will not have you know, sleeping surfaces, but obviously you can tuck the net below a mat. Mm. And then there are situations where even the household is smaller than a net. <laughs> so what is Right. Yeah. So okay. it's hard. Yeah. So there are, there are these barriers that are 
context specific mm. that require you to really tailor the deployment of your intervention to that context. Yeah. And without the resources, that tailoring sometimes is missed because we end up standardizing. You have a mm. standard net, standard size, standard color, and that's distributed. Or you have a situation where we're not able to engage the private sector. So for example, the diagnostics and the treatment, mm. we will work with governments to introduce that in the public sector. Mm. But then in a country like Nigeria, 60% of the population seek treatment in the private sector mm. and you're not doing anything with the private sector. Mm. And so the quality of diagnosis and treatment in the private sector may not be similar to what is happening in the public sector. Yeah. And yet you have a huge proportion of people who are being treated in the private sector. And you see that in many countries where the private sector is a main source of treatment as well as advice that's given to families who have malaria. So there's a funding gap. There's the issue of how to engage the communities, as well as how to engage the private sector to really tailor those tools to mm. fit the context. And then I think there is a potential gap in the enablers mm. that we need. Social yeah. behavior change. Mm. The behavior change that's required to really get these tools adopted and used consistently. Yeah. So you could have situations where during the rainy season or when the density of mosquitoes is high, mm. bed net use may be higher. And then during the dry season or during the very hot season or situations where the mosquito densities are very low, then the, the, the use may not be as consistent. Sounds like how I would behave. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you, we need behavior change in a consistent manner that mm. continues to engage communities with the tools that we are deploying with governments. Yeah. And then surveillance and response. Mm. The data that's required to understand what's going on, the data that's required to identify where there may be inequities or where there may be populations that are currently not either engaging in the public sector, the public mm. health sector, or may not be accessing either prevention or treatment services. And you need that data in the right time to be able to make decisions to ensure that those communities are able to provide access. And then the response side to surveillance mm. is that when things are going wrong, yeah. you need the data to be able to identify what's going wrong and to be able to react. Right. And oftentimes those data are not readily available mm. and we tend to be reactive and we don't have the capacity to really move into a more anticipatory or even a more predictive mode that allows us to be able to anticipate changes or risks that are happening in that context and reacting. So yeah. I think that is one element that I think we could do better when I speak about enablers. Yeah. And then I think the last thing I would say is that our existing tools that have given us the success so far are starting to face risks that we need to mitigate. Yeah. What, what, what are those? Insecticide resistance. Okay. Indoor residual spraying and insecticide-treated nets contributed something like 70% in the decline over the last sort of two decades. Yeah. But insecticide resistance is starting to have a potential impact. I mean, those tools are still effective, Yeah. but there are situations where there is data that says that a particular insecticide may not be working in a particular location or a particular net may not be as optimal in that setting as it could be if insecticide resistance was absent. Yeah, yeah. And making those choices 
not only requires the data, but also requires the new tools. So new insecticide, new nets that one can deploy to those locations. And coincidentally, those new tools are more expensive than what we currently have. I see. Okay. Which is why they, you weren't already using them. Exactly. Yeah. One, we weren't using them because they weren't developed, ah. but they've taken a huge effort in research and development to develop them. Yeah. So there's a trade-off. As the tools get more expensive, for a constrained budget, there's a loss in coverage. I see. Yeah. So with indoor residual spraying, the number of households that can be sprayed with the new insecticides mm. reduces. And so over the years, you've actually seen the coverage of indoor residual spraying in some countries start Mm. to decline. Right, because the budget's the same, but the cost per house is higher. Exactly. Right, right. Right. And same thing with nets. Nets are highly effective, but I mean, there is data that in some locations, all right, they could be pyrethroid resistance. Pyrethroid is the insecticide that is the present on the net. Yeah. And there is a new synergist that's now put on some nets with pyrethroid mm. uh, called PBO, um, piperona butoxide, that really enhances the effect of the pyrethroid yeah. so that a mosquito that may not be killed by pyrethroid alone will be killed by this combination. Okay. And so in those locations where there is evidence of pyrethroid resistance, one would like to deploy these PBO nets. But again, Currently, I would say that the price of both the pyrethroid and the PBO nets are probably are quite similar. Mm. But for the next generation of insecticides that may be even more potent against some of these mosquitoes, there will be an increase in cost, an incremental cost that's going to have a potential trade-off in coverage. And so, whereas we're experiencing a funding gap, yeah. I think that funding gap is likely to increase. Right. Then yeah. you have drug resistance that is also starting to really establish itself. Mm. Atomizanins have been our mainstay in terms of atomizanin-based combinations. And for different combinations, there are different antimalarials that are combined. In Southeast Asia, we've seen atomizanin resistance really have an impact on the choice of antimalarials that can be used. Mm. Um, Presently, we don't have loss of therapeutic efficacy. And what I mean by that is that if an individual takes atomizanin-based combination therapy in most parts of Africa, it will work. Mm. But we're starting to see molecular markers Mm. for atomizanin resistance starting to appear. They are not contributing to the loss of effectiveness, but they need to be monitored Mm. because that could be the beginning of a potential situation where atomizanins themselves could be compromised in terms of their effectiveness. But it's still a long way off. So I don't want to to create a situation where people think the ACTs aren't working. The ACTs are working. But I think as a risk, one has got to be attentive to the fact that in some years' time, we may need to be using either triple combination therapy, Mm. where instead of two antimalarials, one is using three, or other antimalarials that we know manufacturers are working on in the pipeline that could potentially be as effective as atomizanin or even more effective. So I guess the good news is that we have backup treatments and backup insecticides and so on that we can escalate to if, if, if it becomes necessary. The downside is that they cost more. So that just the, the budget gap is going to grow larger unless uh, there's, there's a lot more funding uh, provided. I guess 
the question I asked there about why is there still any malaria has this kind of uh, negative edge to it. But, it. but I guess we should emphasize that between, I guess, 2000 and 2017, the number of deaths from malaria roughly halved or so. So like yes. massive progress is made using these techniques. Yes. So uh, the question is kind of why haven't we gotten rid of all of it rather than uh, why haven't we gotten rid of it at all? Because the next journey, the next part of the journey is more complex. Yeah. So it, it sounds like on the current margin, with extra funding, we can just reach more people with these existing treatments. So there's people who are easy enough to reach if there's money for it. But I imagine at some point uh, you would start hitting that the problem would not become funding only, but also just that the places are very hard to get to. Like, it seems like there's very high rates of malaria, for example, in some really rural parts of the DRC, yes. which I imagine is not a trivial location in which yes. to operate just yes. logistically. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and I suppose if that's the margin, then it becomes maybe also an issue of just like skill in delivering and figuring out how to operate in yes. such locations. Yes, yes. Rob, I, I would say that we can achieve more. Yeah. Right. Certainly with more funding, we can achieve more because we still have a coverage gap that is huge mm. for many of these interventions. So even with our existing interventions, yeah. we can do more. System malaria prevention, for example, we have got to 31 million kids out of the 40 million eligible kids. Yeah. We should be at 40 million. And soon we will have a situation where system malaria prevention could be introduced into new geographies, which will then expand the eligible population even further. Yeah. which is a gap that needs closing. With NETS, in some locations, we're still at about 60% coverage. And yeah. so there's still a 40% gap that needs to be filled. Mm. So I think even with current tools, with additional funding... The scaling we, is straightforward. Or... The scaling is straightforward and we can make progress. Yeah. And even with insecticide <clears throat> resistance, as I've tried to, to elaborate, there are mechanisms to rotate insecticides, mm. All right, to make choices about which insecticides to introduce. There are four classes of insecticides. And so you can rotate or you can you know, introduce a mosaic type of distribution. Right. All right. So I think even with our current tools, there's more that we can achieve if mm. we are able to address, I would say, the funding gap. Mm. And if we are able, as I've stressed, to really bring in these enablers mm. in quite an aggressive manner, the social behavior change, the surveillance and response, as well as the capacity building, making sure that the ministries of health, making sure that the partners really have the technical know-how, as well as the management skills to be able to deploy these interventions to high coverage. And then there's the delivery to hard-to-reach environments, yeah. or the delivery that has to happen when you have conflict, displacements, because those disrupt the malaria ecosystem. Right. and create vulnerabilities. So in conflict regions, people get displaced. They don't take their nets. Mm. They may move from areas with low transmission into areas of high transmission. And healthcare services aren't available. Healthcare services yeah. aren't available. Yeah. And as, as I've mentioned, there are parts of the world where reaching communities can be very difficult. Even just getting nets during the rainy season can be a challenge. I mean, I'm, you've probably seen photos of of cars getting stuck, lorries, things like that getting yeah. stuck. And so they are logistic challenges, but they are surmountable yeah. if we are able to cover that funding gap. Over the last five years or so, what has been your bread and butter as Global Technical Director at Malaria Consortium? What are you responsible for primarily? Yeah, I'm responsible for, <laughs> for, for quite a bit. Um, I think, first of all, I work with a team of experts and mm. colleagues who really are dedicated and committed to the mission that we have as an organization. Mm. And uh, in the UK, we have a team of experts, but also in our country offices, we have nationals who are really 
engaged and really heavily involved in activities in those countries. So working with the team, mentoring some of our experts, but also listening to them in how they are designing new interventions or designing programs that can deliver some of our new interventions. It's also critical that we quality assure our work. Hmm. So when we're deploying tools, it's important for me at, at my level to really think through what some of the risks are and ensure that we've mitigated those risks. Yeah. I'm also a member of our global management team hmm. that oversees the strategy, the financing, um, the decisions that are made to ensure that as an organization, we continue to um, add value to the ecosystem. We've just recently launched our new strategy. So I've spent quite a bit of time with um, my colleagues in designing that strategy. Mm. And I think we're looking forward to implementing that strategy over the next five years. I spend a lot of time giving technical assistance to governments. Mm. Um, governments have requirements, we have needs, and really supporting governments in how they develop their strategies, what their policies are. Um, and ensuring that those policies are either aligned with WHO guidance or aligned with the evidence that we generate, others generate, um, and demonstrate best practice. And then I think I would say I do quite a bit of thinking, mm. um, looking ahead to some of the new tools that we need to be paying attention to, to potential disruptions that could unsettle some of the work that we do, and really looking out for that as well as the potential mitigations. One thing I didn't appreciate when we booked this interview is just how many academic papers your, your, your name is on and also just like how, how many publications Malaria Consortium is involved with. seems like this is kind of a big part of your work is doing research into kind of what, what's the cutting edge, like what's the very best way of delivering these treatments, which treatments work the best, like how effective are they? Yeah, do, do, do you want to talk about that for a second? Yes, Rob. Yeah. I, I would say yes, writing and collaborating um, is a huge part of my role. Um, actually, you know, one of the things I probably could have done even better is to have written more. Right. <laughs> because getting that information from the field and being able to document it and share it, for me, is an important part of being technically excellent in one's role. Hmm. In that if you're not able to document and share, then the experiences that you have don't get disseminated to others. Right. But also don't get peer reviewed. Hmm. Because... I think a, a big element of publications is having yourself potentially acknowledged or criticized mm. by other experts in the field. And I think putting work out there for peer review is an important quality assurance measure mm. for me as an expert, but also the organization on a whole. So, for example, last year, Malaria Consortium, I think we published um, 39 papers, mm. which I think is one of the highest numbers we have achieved since our inception in 2003. Yeah. And that took a huge amount of effort from teams, from even management, making sure that we can provide the funding for open access and also making sure that our experts and teams in country have the opportunity to spend time, read, write, um, really challenge themselves. So writing is an mm. integral part. Mm. And I do feel very strongly that as an organization and as technicians in the field, being able to document and share is critical. Malaria Consortium is an evidence-based organization. Mm. And we do the research within where we work to ensure that we're able to generate that evidence and yeah. share it. And we find that being evidence-driven mm. creates a certain level of trust 
with our partners and with our governments. And so when we speak about some of the things that need to be changed or some of the tools that may not be working effectively, governments have learned hmm. that we do that from an evidence-based as opposed to it's James's opinion or hmm. it's someone else's opinion. And that's a critical part of what we do as an organization. Yeah. Just quickly, um, what are the countries that you operate in? And I guess malaria is the key focus, but uh, Malaria Consortium also works on a, on a few other diseases and programs as well. Yes, malaria is our, I think, our major focus. Mm. Um, but we do work on other diseases, and I'll explain a bit about that. Yeah. We're currently based in eleven offices in African Asia. Mm. I can mention them: um, Nigeria, Togo, Chad, um, Burkina Faso in eastern southern Africa, Uganda, South Sudan, Ethiopia. Mozambique. And then we have offices in Thailand, Cambodia, and Myanmar. Hmm. We also have, well, our headquarters is based in the UK, in London. Hmm. And then we have an office in the US. So malaria is, I think, where the majority of the money goes, but there's a few other things that it seems like maybe you've like, you've built this infrastructure for malaria, and then maybe are you layering other, other disease treatments on top of that? Or is it more integrated than that? It's a logical progression. Yeah. Malaria was, I would say, our entry point into the variety of things that we do. And I think by starting with malaria, we appreciated that a child who comes in with a fever mm. will potentially have malaria, but mm. could have other diseases as well. Mm. For example, pneumonia. And it made sense that in targeting malaria, we were also able to provide the diagnostics as well as the treatments for some of the other diseases that that child was facing so that we're treating the child as a whole. Yeah. In addition, we have infrastructure for delivery, infrastructure for our research and our technical assistance that allows us to tag on other technical assistance mm. on other communicable diseases. And as you rightly said, we do have a huge infrastructure, for example, the delivery of seasonal malaria chemo prevention that we can use to tag on some of the other cost-effective or impactful interventions that could benefit from that platform. So we really vitamin A supplementation is an example of that. Yes, for yeah, example, vitamin yeah. A supplementation mm. um, because of the need, the mm. fact that in locations where we are deploying seasonal malaria chemo prevention, the impact of vitamin A supplementation would contribute to improving the health of children in that age group. And so, by looking at the needs of the context in which we are working we are able to identify what to layer on and what delivery strategies to use. Yeah. I did an interview with uh, Karen Levy. She mentioned that people very often want to like group together diseases or, or get an organization working on a bunch of different things without actually understanding what are the synergies that are available. So she was saying people want to say, oh, we'll make an organization that works on neglected tropical diseases, but that is not a natural kind in any way because they tend to be in different locations and yes. spread by, by different mechanisms. So there's not actually any synergies treating those kinds of things. And she was suggesting exactly uh, what, what you guys have done which I guess is like build this infrastructure and then say, given that we are delivering tablets at this particular kind of age, uh, like what else can we deliver at that point that is like that, that, that makes a ton of sense? And I guess this, this allows you to be more cost effective because you're like twice as much impact with like not having to do that much extra work, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. We're very particular in terms of how we extend ourselves mm. so that um, we are really maximizing value that, that can be achieved. Mm. And we're conscious that the health system itself also has a certain capacity and as we sort of roll out malaria interventions, we're mm. constantly looking out for opportunities where we can strengthen the, the, the health system so that the health system can cope 
with some of the other interventions that we can lay on. So we've really been big in deploying community-based health services. Mm. Seasonal molecular prevention is one, but integrated community case management of mm. both malaria, diarrhea, and pneumonia mm. is another, where we've worked very closely with community health workers in different locations to really understand what they are able to do mm. and the effective use of that platform to reach a large number of children and really reduce some of the inequities that we currently find in health systems. Nice. Okay, let's talk about Miller Consortium's kind of current strategy and why you do things the, the way you do, how, how you make those decisions. Just to recap, how do you kind of split your funding between the various different options? It seems like the, the chemo prevention is the biggest category and then it's nets and then I guess other things. Is that right? So seasonal malaria chemo prevention, at least in 2021, really is, is, is a huge component of our delivery. Hmm. I think it's, it's probably close to more than 50% or about 50% of our total income per annum. Now, the way Malaria Consortium works, we're very integrated into the health system. Mm. And so the choices that we make tend to be embedded within the malaria strategies at the country level, aligned with the global technical strategy that WHO has sort of provided as normative guidance. So we work very closely with governments in Africa and Asia to help them make those choices based on the evidence yeah. that either they generate, others generate, or we generate, such that their strategies are evidence-based. And within those strategies, we then make choices in terms of, one, Malaria Consortium as an organization, our strategy, but also looking at the combination of interventions that are likely to achieve the maximum impact. So we work very closely. And then another thing to understand in terms of our business model is that we have to generate new business by bidding for programs that donors put out there. So if the US government, if the UK government, if the Global Fund put out a call and say, we need a program that delivers nets in a particular country or a program that delivers SMC in a particular country, then we would be competing with other partners to try and get the most value for money, the most technically sound proposal that then gets approved by the particular donor. So a large part of what we do is based on what donors themselves would prioritize mm. or what requirements they have for their funding in countries that have strategies that are evidence-based. It's only recently... I think um, probably in the last five years, where we are having access to more unrestricted funding that allows Malaria Consortium itself to start to make some choices. Otherwise, a large proportion of our income is restricted, either because of a donor priority or a country priority, or if it's philanthropic funding, you know, restricted to a particular program. And we then deliver that program as cost efficiently and trying to achieve the highest value for money. But over the last few years, we are now starting to have unrestricted funding, which is really fortunate, mm. that allows us to make some of those choices either in the programs that we support governments with, but also in some of the research that we're able to do that can complement what other programs are doing, what other donor priorities there are, 
and to some extent addressing the needs that countries have. Yeah, is that unrestricted funding coming from good ventures and like effective altruist flavored sources, or is it is it coming from elsewhere? It's a combination, but I yeah. think it's largely coming from philanthropic sources. Mm. Um, just giving on our website, yeah. um, we've got a Malaria Consortium US who are heavily involved in generating funding as well. Yeah. So it's a variety of sources that I would say uniquely giving us that chance to make choices. Yeah. An example is a piece of work we did on the interaction between COVID and malaria. So when the COVID pandemic started, we had seen the modeling and the figures that showed that the interaction between malaria and COVID was going to be disastrous. Sorry, in what way? Because of the health systems being weak Mm. and the fact that you have these comorbidities where you you won't have access to treatment diagnostics because of disruptions, Mm. and then you have a pandemic coming in, and that mix would really um, lead to... Drive up levels. uh, Yeah, Mm. high mortality rates, Mm. high morbidity rates. And we launched a study in April to look at that interaction from a clinical perspective, but also from a molecular perspective in terms of laboratory indices. And we were very fortunate to be able to react that rapidly because we had unrestricted funding. At that time, there weren't calls that we could, appro- we, we could compete for, right? And we very rapidly set up a study in Uganda that could look at SARS-CoV-2 um, and malaria, Plasmodium falciparum, the interactions. And that's a study that was published last year and has really got quite a bit of media attention. And also um, our target audiences have been interested. So that's an example of what we can do when we are able to make our own choices with unrestricted funding. And then we have a couple of other programs where we are making those choices by identifying what the need is, but then identifying what the potential for impact is now and looking two, three years into the horizon as to what some of the questions could be such that we're able to start either the research or the programming early to be able to have those answers by the time those questions come to play. Yeah. And then putting around some of the results measurement around some of our programs that either we've not been able to get funding from the donor mm-hmm. or we would prefer to do more elaborate measurements. And so we can use some of that funding for that purpose. Yeah. Okay. So until recently, most of your programs are running on a kind of contractual basis where an aid agency or I guess potentially a, a local government would say, you know, we want to deliver nets to tons yes. of people, we want to deliver these drugs to lots of people. We need to find a partner to actually do the logistics and the delivery. Yeah. And you would like say, we, we could do that. <laughs> and then yes. you take an amount of money and yeah. do it. And I guess that's still part of what you do. Yes. But uh, but now you've got like more funding that goes to you specifically and you can decide what's yes. the best way to, to, to allocate yes. this funding. Yes. Interesting. So as I understand it, um, Malaria Consortium's been kind of one of GiveWell's top recommended charities for four years or so, I think since 2016, 17, uh, and it's you know, had higher or lower prominence. I think at the moment it's like very prominent. I think it might be kind of the, the first thing on the page. I think I'm right that they largely want to fund the chemo prevention, the seasonal malaria chemo prevention. So maybe that funding is coming in kind of as restricted or at least like, yes. yeah, it is. Okay. Yes. I think GiveWell has thought a bunch about this issue of restricted versus unrestricted funding. And as you're pointing out, there's, there's big benefits to having unrestricted funding available because it means that you can react as opportunities become available. You can, react, you can respond more quickly. Why do you think it is that GiveWell kind of wants to maybe to tie your hands to some extent uh, funding the chemo prevention rather than say, well, it's up to you, like what country you want to operate in and, and what you want to deliver? That's a good question, Rob. <laughs> <Is> it, <laughs> is that, I think actually someone from GiveWell might have asked this. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I think 
obviously, as you know, GiveWorld have yeah. sort of different funding mechanisms. And I think as a top charity, our seasonal malaria chemo prevention is the program that has been ascribed that status. Status, I see. Yeah. Right. That's the thing that they can say. We are confident. It's evidence-based. Yes. Like so so will, you go yeah. the evidence, you know, the capacity, the organization, efficiency, effectiveness, our reach. Mm. You know, that's the program that is being highlighted mm. um, within that status. And I think rightfully so, it is a strategy that, you know, is highly efficacious, is effective, mm. and you know, needs to achieve coverage where they are eligible children. There's no point having a strategy and 40 million kids of whom some of them are not getting access to a you know, highly cost-effective tool that can be deployed, Yeah. right? The deployment is, is not rocket science. It's actually, mm. log- it's just logistics and good planning mm. and making sure you have the financing that allows you to do that. Because with SMC, our planning cycle is always, a, is always one year ahead. So right. we're constantly one year ahead of where we are at. And so you really have to be ahead of the game, working very closely with governments. So I think there is certainly value. And as I said, as a CHOP charity, it's been the seasonal malaria chemo prevention that we've really scaled up. And we've also worked very closely with other partners to ensure that the funding we have can also catalyze. So for example, in Nigeria, it's not just philanthropic funding. In Nigeria, you have Global Fund, you have a variety Mm. of donors who are involved in seasonal malaria chemo prevention. So we not only deliver, but we're also working very closely to see how to catalyze mm. and to make sure that the coordination and the partnership that is required for maximum impact and scale-up is taking place at the national level and the sub-national level. So we've been really fortunate in that regard. I think GiveWell is open to looking at other programs. Yeah. And what I think is key is that the amount of evidence, the information that GiveWell requires for it to make those decisions mm. is something that has to be made available. Yeah, I see. So I guess to some extent, they're restricted by what their promise is to their supporters and people who are reading them, which is that we'll find you know, evidence-based, cost-effective yes. interventions. And they, they feel more comfortable saying that about the seasonal malaria chemo prevention than just saying giving to malaria consortium to do whatever they feel like, because then you could spend it on something that they don't have particular confidence in. It could be better, or it could be worse. And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think it's the evidence, making the, the choices that really are adding value into the system. But I will say that, you know, as an organization, we have seen the value of unrestricted funding, whether yeah. it's whoever it is from. We are technically based we are transparent, we're accountable, mm. and we would increasingly like to see situations where we are able to make choices about some of the things we do in terms of the short term, mm. but also some of the things that we can research or prepare for in sort of the medium term. I mean, we haven't been able to do that in the past. Mm. And I would say that it's something as an organization, if we are able to have more capacity to do that, it is something that would certainly benefit us as well as benefit the governments that we provide technical assistance to and some of the areas where we do feel, you know, for example, integrated community case management of malaria or surveillance and response. If you try to do a cost effectiveness for surveillance and response yeah. in sub-Saharan Africa, it's difficult to get that number. I, I mean, you, you can get some numbers in terms of reactive case detection. These elimination strategies that have a surveillance component where malaria transmission is low. But if you look at that in a context of malaria in Uganda, in Nigeria, or DRC, 
Hmm. You, you can't get a number. But surveillance and response, from our perspective, is a critical intervention that needs to go alongside the other tools. Because increasingly, we're seeing it, you've got to be able to prioritize and make choices hmm. and react. You can't wait to have an epidemic. You can't wait to have resurgence, then think about your solution. Or you can't not have the right data at the right time. And putting that effort and working with governments to make the data available and share that data, use that data for decision-making at a sub-national level and at a national level is very difficult to put a cost-effectiveness number or a cost to. Yeah, I think I might have had this misconception that in parts of Africa where the climate causes malaria to be very common. But it's kind of at this, like, it's at the same level basically every year that, um, like, it's always there at roughly a similar prevalence. It's a contagious disease, of course, and so it's probably going to have the same kind of spiky, or like, you suddenly get a local epidemic where tons of people get malaria all at once, and then maybe it, uh, it fades away. And other areas, maybe it doesn't take off nearly so much, like we see with COVID and like we see with the flu. And I suppose... Yeah, something I had never thought about is, I guess maybe you want to know, like, where is malaria taking off this year? And then you can, like, throw extra resources at getting the drugs to those places and, uh, and the nets in those locations to stop a pandemic before it, like, reaches extremely high levels of prevalence. Is, is that right? Malaria is heterogeneous. The, the distribution, especially now, as I said, we've seen the last 20 years, the last two decades mm. of success. And so we've, we've sort of controlled the malaria that is not embedded within the context. Mm. And now we're having to deal with, you know, malaria that is context-specific, localized, Mm. and has variables that are making it more difficult for you to achieve the continued decline. Mm. And then we have hard-to-reach areas, or you even have behavioral elements. You know, as I mentioned, treatment seeking in in, in the private sector You've got to be able to reach the private sector. You're not going to suddenly change and say people should all go into the public sector because they made a choice they want to go into the private sector. So what are you going to do about the private sector? And then we've talked about hard to reach areas. And, you know, malaria is a disease of poverty. Hmm. You may say that there are health facilities, but there are households that are not able to to, to access services because of either geographical distance or the fact that the health facility may be open at a time when they should be looking after their livelihoods or looking Mm. after their gardens, Mm. and they won't have that time. Mm. So there's some of these barriers that are preventing access and having the capacity to understand those nuances within the context. And that requires data. It's not insurmountable. It's just that you have to have the right data. You need to have the data in terms of the people. You need to have data in terms of the mosquitoes, something called entomological surveillance, And you need to understand whether the parasite is continuing to be susceptible to the drugs Mm. or that the parasite itself, when you test for it using a malaria rapid diagnostic test, Mm. you are likely to be identifying it. Because even now we have what is called HPR2 deletions, Mm. where the malaria parasite is now deleting a gene that the rapid diagnostic tests (laughs) are supposed to pick. That's savvy. Okay. And that's because I suppose there's selective pressure yes. on not being detected because yes. then you won't, I see, because then you okay. can spread better. Yeah. Yes. So you <laughs> selective pressure. So just having that information that allows you to then make the right choices and really deploy the tools in the right location, the right intensity. I mean, we've scaled up everywhere, but we still have gaps. 
But then you might find a situation where there is something going on and you need to either react with a better net, Mm. for example, a pyrethroid PBO net, or you may have to react with more intense community case management, Mm. for example, integrated community case management, because you may have seen an upsurge starting and you really want to make sure it's kept down. Mm. Or you have a situation where there is genuinely a upsurge taking place and you really want to stop that happening because the sooner you stop it down, the less likely you are for mosquitoes to be able to transmit. Mm. Yeah, I guess we got into this topic because you were saying that this work where you're uh, you know, tracking where is malaria taking off and, and, and using that information in order to shape your strategy, that could be incredibly useful, but it's like maybe harder to convince donors to support or at least like donors who are focused on like proven interventions to support it because it's harder to say ahead of time exactly what is the cost effective for this because it's not just a matter of delivering the same treatment to other people in areas with the same malaria prevalence. It could be that it's incredibly useful some year, or it could be that some year it doesn't really help your strategy uh, all, all that much. So it's a bit more of a speculative spend. Yes, it is. Yeah. But from a personal viewpoint, and I think from an organizational viewpoint, surveillance and response is mm. a critical intervention if we are to achieve malaria elimination. Mm. We already see that in Asia, where mm. surveillance and response is playing a very important role in continuing to identify the last case of malaria where it is and to make sure it's dealt with. Hmm. But we've not seen that, you know, the kind of investment in surveillance and response in the control setting where Hmm. you have higher transmission intensities, Hmm. because I think the numbers are so large and in some ways the trends or the spikes, you know, get lost out by the noise. But if one was to say, you know, if you had additional funding, where would you spend it? I think surveillance and response for me is one area that can have potential if done properly, having the right data and using it because, you know, you need to have data and then you need to be able to use it at the subnational level, you know, districts, uh, provinces, and then at the national level. Looking ahead, it will be difficult to use machine learning It will be Mm. difficult to use AI Mm. without having data. And if in the next decade, one is to envisage machine learning as contributing to some of the decisions, some of the predictions that allow us to be really more savvy at our choices, we are going to need this data. And if we don't start collecting that data now, when we have the tools to use the data, Mm. what will we be doing? Because you need this long-term data and you need consistent quality that can allow you to then get into decision support tools and to really optimize your decision making. I tell my team, at the moment, we are making decisions, right? We are bringing on board modeling to help with some of our decision making. So mm. all the, you know, the cost effectiveness modeling, some of the modeling work that allows you to identify where to put particular interventions mm. and combinations of interventions. I think in the next 10 years, we should be looking to things like machine learning to be able to support that decision-making so that we're probably more precise and we're more targeted. And that's going to require data. Kind of surprised me that machine learning or AI would be, it seems like the decisions would be things like, you know, malaria is more prevalent here or malaria is like increasing in prevalence here. So we need to to invest more money in in that particular location. Do we need something as sophisticated as machine learning to, to make these decisions? Or is that, is that going to add a lot of value beyond what a human decision maker can do? It will add value, especially as the data elements increase. Yeah. Because 
as I've stressed, you do have the parasite, the vector, mm. and human behavior. So looking at the mosquito data, the breeding sites, the breeding habits, the human biting elements, yeah. there are situations where the malaria mosquito is changing its habits. So rather than biting mm. at night, some mosquitoes are starting to bite earlier in the evening mm. or later in the morning. Mm. Bring that data together. The, the, the parasite data, what's happening in terms of some of the genomics, some of the changes that are taking place, and then really the trend data. Bringing those data elements together, yeah. all right, more comprehensively mm. to allow us not only to anticipate what's happening now, mm. but also to anticipate what's coming forward. Climate change, climate variability is mm. going to affect malaria. And the climate variables, you know, the variability is going to increase and become more complex. Yeah. And as we bring that data in, right, for seasonal malaria chemo prevention, for example, we are constantly monitoring the start of the rainy season, the duration of the rainy season. Mm. In some of our locations, we've had to change from four cycles, i.e. four treatments, mm. uh, one month apart, to five treatments because the season of malaria transmission mm. with rain is getting a bit longer. And there will be some situations where some locations where it is shorter, all right, because of, as I said, climate variability. And so you're bringing in climate data as well. So these data elements, I think, will give us the opportunity to be a bit more precise in some of the choices that we make, yeah. but some of the transitions. Now, malaria goes down, mm. you scale up. What happens if, as a result of you know, success, mm. a donor says we no longer need to support indoor residual spraying? Mm. We no longer need to support seasonal malaria prevention. We no mm. longer need to support nets, right? Right, yeah. The transmission potential, all right, I mean, will exist. But then what could you switch from one thing to another? Can you switch from indoor residual spraying to nets? Mm. Can you switch from seasonal malaria chemo prevention to integrated community case management? What are the switches that we need to be making as it's coming down so we continue to maintain a cost-effective approach, but we continue to sustain the downward trend of malaria until we have those game changes, whether it's gene drive, whether it's the transmission blocking vaccine, yeah. in which case the decision-making will probably be simplified. Yeah, yeah that, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, a, a listener wrote in with, this, with the question, if you look at some countries in Africa like Uganda, Congo, Nigeria, you see rates of malaria that are kind of 10 to 100 times what you typically see in Asia or in South America. So the, the prevalence and the number of deaths is just like dramatically higher, which is why about 90% of malaria deaths are, are in sub-Saharan Africa. They're saying, despite that, you know, globally, quite a lot of money is spent on malaria control and you know, even attempts at local elimination in, in, in South America and Southeast Asia, where malaria is already like not, not very prevalent. Rosa was kind of asking, like, should we reorient our spending away from those places where malaria is already largely uh, removed and put more effort into places like Nigeria, where the prevalence is phenomenally high and the, and the, and the death rate is very high? I guess... I'm sure you'll be loath to ever say that we should spend less on, on malaria control, you know, uh, in 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 Bolivia or in or in Thailand. But <laughs> I suppose would we potentially save more lives if 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 we did that, or, or would it just result in would then would malaria take off in these other places where it's been ninety percent reduced? You know, as malaria transmission declines, it is expensive relatively yeah. to continue to maintain the trajectory towards elimination mm. and to sustain it. Yeah. So the investment in elimination is justified because we've got to continue eliminating so that we're increasing 
the number of locations that are malaria-free. Yeah. When a local area is malaria-free, does that potentially allow you to kind of ease off on some of the spending? Because you say, well, it's largely gone now, so like we don't need the nets right now. Or is it more that you have to kind of always be doing it? It depends, really, because there are some locations. Because what happens is that as you're eliminating, you're reducing the geographical location where there could be potential breeding mm. or viability of transmission. Yeah. So you, you can continue to localize your interventions, but you must maintain your surveillance system such mm. that if anything happens and malaria is triggered in other locations, you can react quite quickly to ensure that you don't have transmission taking place. Mm. Because one of the criteria for certifying malaria elimination is that you don't have mm. local transmission taking place. For certification, you need to have met that requirement for like three years before uh. WHO can then certify that you're malaria-free. So you need to have that investment taking place. But I think it is also justified to say that there should be a proportional investment in countries with high burdens. The Nigerias, you know, Uganda's DRCs, countries that if we are not able to demonstrate a sustained decline in the burden of malaria, then it is not possible to talk about a malaria-free world mm. or to talk about the achievement of the, the targets for the global technical strategy that WHO has, mm. which says that X number of countries will have reduced their burden by 50% by 2030. That target is not achievable if you can't deal with malaria in a place like DRC or in yeah. a place like Nigeria. And I think those numbers are partly driven by population size, hmm. population growth. I mean, there's been huge growth in sub-Saharan Africa, sometimes not proportionally met with government investment in the health system. So you have population size, population growth. And I think the population at risk, because even if you have a large population living in, let's say, urban settings or in settings where there isn't malaria risk, then mm. your numbers will not be that great. But in Nigeria, in DRCs, the majority of the population is at risk of malaria. And yeah. so one is to really be aiming for a malaria-free world. We've got to invest proportionally in the countries that have the highest burden. In the absence of the gene drives, how practical is it to eliminate malaria, given that that would require you to have very good malaria control everywhere? It seems like you could almost always end up with you know, some location that has you know, the worst possible weather for malaria spread and like, you know, maybe has like a, a civil war going on or something else that's preventing delivery of treatment and, and nets and so on. And then, of course, that it could always spread from there. Potentially, it could always go back and potentially resettle other locations. We've managed to get rid of smallpox. I think it's the only uh, it's the only human disease that we've managed to completely uh, eradicate. And we're very close with with polio. But I wonder, with a disease as contagious as as malaria, is it realistic to think that we could get rid of it completely? Malaria elimination is a goal. If there's one change that we need to have, I think in terms of mindset, it's mm. moving away from a control mindset to mm. an elimination mindset. If we can aim for elimination as a goal, yeah. then we will see that the investments as well as the effort that is required mm. to really do some of these things effectively will pay off. Yeah. So I would look at it this way. Before we even talk about elimination, I think in terms of the near term, we have the tools that allow us to reduce the mortality further. Why do we still have 627,000 people dying of malaria. So as an immediate need, 
we do have the tools that can help us, as well as you know, the commitments from governments, Abuja, all these declarations that can allow us to really tackle mortality and disease. Season malaria chemo prevention, 70% reduction in malaria cases, 70% reduction in hospitalizations, Yeah. right? 40 million kids. We should be reaching 40 million kids. When it's expanded, we should be reaching that group, right? So that we are in the near term reducing the disease and the death impact. And that will also have an economic benefit because it affects the livelihoods of households, as well as the education of children who are not able to achieve their full potential Mm. because of some of the neurological sequelae of malaria, right? So I think that is a goal that is before us and is something that we can achieve, all right, in terms of the immediate need. The elimination target, right? If I was a household, and, and I'm only speculating here, if I was faced with a child who's going to have malaria you know, up to six times in a year and you could reduce that to one mm. or even nothing, I would be really happier to have that chance not to have my, my child or children experience that. Yeah. While looking at malaria elimination as a next target. And as we've seen with some good examples is that if we can sustain this course of bringing on death, bringing on morbidity, then potentially when we have these new tools, whether, as I mentioned, gene drive or a vaccine, which Mm. may not hit 70% or 80% efficacy, then we start to chip away at the transmission intensity Mm. and the transmission potential. And so I think we have to be looking at it in a long-term vision and add value because Mm. When you look at cost effectiveness, when you're looking at costs, it's difficult to add cost to the value of a long-term goal Mm. and add value to that long-term goal because of the huge benefits that it's going to have to economies as well. So, yeah, you mentioned Nigeria. As I understand it, Nigeria just has a a phenomenal fraction of all the malaria deaths in the world. I think uh, uh, I've got 32% of all all deaths globally in, in, in my notes, yeah. Is there anything like... Nigeria is a very big country, but still, it's very disproportionate. Is there anything worth saying about um, how we can best go about um, malaria control in, in Nigeria specifically? One is the, the resource gap, whether it's domestic financing, um, development assistance. I mean, there's more resources required because the, the coverage gaps are still huge. Yeah. So that's, so, so that's kind of the basic reason is people I, don't have nets, people don't have... A, yes, I think that, right. that, 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 that would be one major one. I think... The other would be the private sector. And I'm not looking at Mm. the private sector as a challenge. I'm Mm. looking at the private sector as an opportunity is that one has got to find ways to engage the private sector because roughly 60% of Nigerians seek care in the private sector. So you can't just deploy interventions that are targeting the public sector, but you should be able like diagnostics, treatment should be accessible in both the public and the private sector. Yeah. And Nigeria is increasingly trying to see how to work collaboratively across the private sector. Mm. But it's certainly a challenge that needs to be addressed. Fortunately, things like seasonal malaria chemo prevention are equitable, yeah. all right, because you're reaching whole communities, you're reaching children who may be in hard to reach environments. So mm. that is agnostic of that fraction between the public and the private sector. But things like diagnostics, the right treatments, and quality assured treatments 
required to be able to collaborate across the public and the private sector. Yeah. You're saying that um, most uh, Nigerians, uh, when, when they fall ill, they go to private healthcare providers and they, and they pay for that out of pocket, I guess. Is that a reflection of the low quality or low availability of government provided healthcare in, in, in those locations? It's a mix. It's yeah, geographic access, perceptions of quality, hmm. also time spent. You know, you get your drug shop next to you or your patent medicine vendors because mm. they are providers yeah. that are mobile or are very close to the home right. who you can very rapidly get to and get treatment without having to go and wait in a long line in the public sector. Honestly, it's exactly the same in the yeah. UK. <laughs> yeah. so if you want to, if you really want to get treated and you don't have time, then uh, it's faster to pay for a private provider. And then the private sector is, is also dynamic. If it identifies a access gap, they uh, will go. Move in first. They'll move in. Mm. So they're quite dynamic and are responsive. They also have a variety of commodities. Mm. If you have a fever, they can give you a variety of things, sometimes not following national guidelines, right. oftentimes not following national guidelines. Yeah. Whereas if you go to the public sector, it says if you have a fever, <laughs> do exactly and you, what it says. You, you do exactly what it says. You, you, know, you may not be able to give an antimalarial because that person is negative, but the person mm. says, oh, by the way, I have a fever, yeah. so I need something. And mm. the nurse says, no, you are negative. Cannot, yeah. We can't give you. So there's a variety the of patients variables. patients don't like that, even if, yeah. I mean, it might be the right call, but uh, the yeah. patients don't like yeah. it. So there's, but I think it's a combination, including access. Yeah. Okay. And, and you're saying, I mean, if, if we're going to aim to control malaria in a country where 60% of doctor visits are with the private sector, then one thing you've got to do is improve treatment of malaria in those, in those uh, private hospitals or GP clinics. Uh, in, what, in what ways could they be better? And is that something that Malaria Consortium like, actively, actively works on, you know, to, talking to healthcare companies in Nigeria to get them to do a better job? Yes. In many of our locations, we are at a coordination level where we work within the coordination platforms to really encourage a public-private um, philanthropic mix, whereby you know, governments are not just thinking about what is happening in the public sector but are also able to engage the private sector. And in some countries, like in Nigeria, the philanthropic sector as well, because some of the private sector is actually philanthropic funded. Mm. So, for example, in Nigeria, we've been instrumental in helping government to put those platforms in place and really convincing some of the major players in the private sector that it is in their best interest to be working with the the public sector. Because Mm. sometimes... The two sectors don't talk to each other, but they also don't see the mutual benefit Mm. and will either be competing with each other or just not understanding each other because the private sector mentality can be very different from the public sector mentality. And yet what goes on in the public sector can adversely affect the private sector. For Mm. example, um, when you distribute nets or when you distribute free tests and drugs through the public sector, Mm. sometimes they can leak into the community Mm. and then affect sales or reach of the private sector. And then you have situations where the private sector is not following guidelines, Mm. not using quality assured medicines or not using the right tests. And then that obviously has an adverse impact on what the public sector is trying to achieve. So it's really getting them to understand that there's a win-win, but how do they work together? And I think there are a couple of, you know, there are a couple of examples out there where how do you create the landscape that allows both to coexist? So can you get the private sector to benefit from the training of health workers? So instead of them relying on 
information they've either gotten because they work, sometimes they work both in the public sector and the private sector, mm. but to extend public sector trainings to the private sector, right? The monitoring systems that are in the public sector, some the supervision, how do you get that to be extended? Or some of the private sector players, what approaches do they need to have in place that can allow them to continue to mentor and to supervise their users? And then at the community level is working with patent medicine vendors in Nigeria or drug shops in some other places where they see that it is in their interest to use national guidelines because the quality of care that they deliver is higher. They may not necessarily get the same profit because they're not giving as many drugs as they could, but they're able to then have better outcomes from the treatments that they're providing. Mm. But also they can create repeat clients that are coming back because of the quality uh. of services that they are provided. And then also the fact that there's a public good that is there to be had mm. if we are able to provide the right treatments to the right people at the right time, mm. as opposed to the profit incentive that may sometimes um, dominate. Yeah. So Malaria Consortium and I guess other organizations in the space are trying to provide drugs or nets or other services to millions and ultimately tens of millions of people every year. It's like an enormous operational <laughs> project by any standard. What are some of the biggest challenges you face delivering chemo prevention to millions or tens of millions of people uh, every year? And I guess trying to expand that number year on year. Yeah. Within our seasonal malaria chemo prevention, we've seen roughly every year like a, a 60% or a 50% increase in the number of children that we can reach or that we have reached. I think what we have experienced more recently are the challenges with security mm. and the fact that in some of our locations where we have been working is some of the security cha challenges, the fact that, you know, the locations are insecure, we need more measures in place mm. to provide duty of care to our, our staff, but also the government workers mm. who are participating and hosting the work that we're doing. So I think there's an issue of security that is is started to to create some challenges, which we are mitigating by, yeah. you know, best practices. So you operate in Ethiopia, which is in the middle of a civil war at the moment. Yes. Is that I guess that's a that's one of the cases of this, I imagine. Yes, but also in Nigeria and places like Borno State, right. where right. we've distributed Borno State Boko Haram, hmm. where we've been able to distribute SMC yeah. um, as well. So there's, there's, there's locations where we are having to be really more security aware yeah. and put in place um, protocols to, to ensure we can provide duty of care, yeah. but also working closely with governments on the right planning. That's one. COVID obviously has created another. A lot of headaches, yeah. Disruptions. Um, you really have got to get your planning right well in advance. Otherwise, the delays, the disruptions, and with seasonal malaria chemo prevention, you can't afford to be late. You know, you've got to kick it off at the right time. Yeah. And I guess arrive every month, right? So uh, if you arrive late, then people are unprotected for some time. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm. And that contributes to transmission. Mm. And also people start to, you know, when people don't see the benefits of our program, then mm. they start to have doubts as to why they should continue to be part of that program. Mm. So security, COVID. Um, and then I think with all things, there's the planning, the micro planning that has to take place to really ensure you have efficiencies and effectiveness. Mm. And that planning involves not just government, but also partners who are either distributing you know, commodities in another location or 
like we've seen in some programs, not our SMC program, but in some other programs where we are doing one component and another partner with another funding stream is doing another component. So being able to make sure that we can synchronize and, and, and plan and bring things in at the right time. But I think with seasonal malaria prevention, I think it's security, it's COVID that have really created some challenges mm. that we are mitigating and we've continued to mitigate. With COVID, we've had to adapt our approach. Mm. We've had to put in um, infection prevention protocols. Mm. So we've been able to adapt. But I think we are fortunate that we've been able to do that. I think that's one of the virtues of philanthropic funding in that you can do your planning you know, a couple of years in advance in such a way that you've got a bit more say in what you can do, when you can do it. You're not very constrained by budget lines where you, you know, suddenly we need mm. IPC material. We don't have many months for a decision, mm. Mm. right? You've got to react quite quickly because otherwise your SMC won't be delivered. Yeah. So I would say budgeting, the logistics that we, we, we have in hand and really working within a coordinated platform with other players who are on board those would be some of the, the, the potential key challenges that we're currently facing. Yeah. I guess going to deliver human prevention to a million kids, I imagine this requires hiring between like 1,000 and maybe 10,000 people to do the delivery over that four or five-month period because they're going to, and they're going to need support staff as well. Do you directly, does Malaria Consortium directly employ like thousands of staff basically to go and, and you know, stick, the, stick, stick tablets in mouths and tell, tell the parents to do it again the next few days? Or is it like operated through other bodies somehow? So it's, it's a combination. Our programs are embedded in the health system. So we work very closely with health workers, community health workers. Even the planning structure is within the health system. I see. Right? So kind of you're paying to provide the drugs and I guess providing instruction, but most of the staff are parts of the public health care system. Yeah, so, it's, so it's a combination. So you have the public health system, which has got to function, and then you have the complementary staff on board mm. that can either support things like the supervision, support things like the record keeping. It's a combination. Mm. So you have staff within the government or the health system, and then you have staff who Malaria Consortium does hire, or in some situations, the allowances that have to be paid to ensure that the government officials are able to, to sort of deliver. And those are statutory allowances they're not you know allowances that are that, that are additional incentives those are standard incentives that are there for the health workers to be able to participate and deliver but then you have some of the logistics like the transport there are things that would not be available either with the intensity or the geographical reach that we need so it's a combination sometimes we have staff in some countries that we need to put on board but those complement what exists in the health system. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So Ethiopia is in the middle of a civil war and you're trying to de deliver malaria treatment. Like, I imagine the security environment's like quite poor in some places. What, like, what can actually be done there other than just withdrawing? In our Ethiopia program, we're, again, we're very embedded within the system, but we're also, in all our locations, we have staff who are nationals. We have staff who you know, really understand the context mm. and work closely with governments, but also work within partnerships mm. with other non-governmental organizations, donors, subnational entities. 
So I think we are fortunate in that regard that many of our teams are already able to make use of context-specific information and understand some of the risks as well as some of the triggers for those risks. So in one of our programs in Ethiopia, we're working very closely with communities and the subnational structures to sort of deliver IRS, indoor residual spraying, in a manner that sustains itself. So rather than it be, you know, a project, is how does the community actually engage mm. with indoor residual spraying and sort of ensure that it's something that can continuously happen. So it's really about having security protocols in place, being able to connect with information and use that information. Because what we've, what at least we've seen is that you've got to have access to the security system in your location that allows you to make the right choices, but also utilizes the communities as well as the structures at that level. Because they themselves will know what's happening, will know what risks are involved, and will give you advice in terms of what locations not to go to and where you need to put enhanced security measures in place. So I think having nationals in those roles means that they are plugged mm, in to I what see. is going on. They are trusted by the communities. Okay, yeah. And as an organization, we emphasize you know, being technically sound and being evidence-based. We avoid situations where we are using our opinions or we're getting mm. involved in politics at subnational level. Mm. We really are an organization, just like many organizations that are neutral, that are looking out for social impact, for social mm. good, and making the best use of the assets that we have to achieve that. Yeah, And communities see that. Communities engage with that because they have needs mm. and those needs continue to be important. Mm. Now, when we obviously have a conflict situation, because yeah. we're not a humanitarian organization, we will back off or restrict our movements. We have an office in Myanmar. We have, I think, two programs of which we are closing one mm. because we just can't run it. We've waited We've done as much as we can. The situation isn't changing. Mm. And so we've pulled one of our programs. I mean, the donor gave us a, a decision point. Yeah. And I think we decided with our collaborators mm. that that program was not viable. Yeah. Um, we have another program which is delivering telemedicine remotely mm. and therefore does not put our staff at risk. And that's something where there's a huge need and we'll continue to do that. But we just can't operate in Myanmar. And, yeah. and we've made the choice to, to really limit our activities. So we are not a humanitarian organization. There are other players who are better at that. So when we find ourselves in those situations, we will sort of hold back. And when the situation changes, we will we reconsider. We'll yeah. reconsider. And then we've done delivering SMC in Borno, where we do see the value add of our capabilities and the fact that we can maintain duty of care of our staff, but also provide the right security measures for our government partners, then we will be able to operate. Turning back now to, I guess, yeah, c countries that don't have these particular security challenges. Yeah, someone in the audience was very uh, keen to hear about how Malaria Consortium approaches building and maintaining relationships with, uh, with government partners, uh, both at the technical and, uh, and, and political levels. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that or any, any lessons to share? Yes, we do have lessons to share in, in terms of partnerships. Um, 
yeah, working closely with governments. Most of our country teams are nationals. And that's something we feel strongly about where we can, because nationals will understand some of the context specific issues, or mm. if it's a non-national who's been in that context for quite a while. Over time, they will have relationships that really strengthen the trust between mm. the organization as well as between some of the government entities, but also the fact that you need some repute and you need some um, some integrity. Trust, uh, yeah. yeah, you need some integrity that allows you to influence mm. uh, and to position. An important element of our work is evidence-based. And you will find that our teams will strive to identify the evidence mm. or the data and use that to justify some of the recommendations or some of the opinions that we have. And that allows us to maintain that neutrality where even when we need to say things that governments may not necessarily agree with, we're saying it from the point of the data or the evidence that we have or the information mm. or the experiences that either we've generated or others have generated and we've been able to package that evidence and put it on the table so that we are having informed conversations and supporting decision-making from a point of being neutral. Yeah. We will also say what needs to be said. We don't mm. have to always tow a diplomatic line. We will say what needs to be said. And I think our partners have learned that when Malaria Consortium does say something that isn't going right, it's not because we're bad intentioned, yeah. but as a technical agency, we should be able to say what we feel is going well and what we feel isn't going well. So from a government to organization level, I think there's an element of trust. There's understanding the context. The fact that in many of our locations, we've actually been there for quite a while. Mm. So we're committed to being there and providing that support to governments. All right. So there's an element of we have a vested interest in being there. And we will continue to provide that support. And then when it comes to partnerships, we do make the effort to work collaboratively. And so there are coordination platforms at country level, like technical working groups mm. or you know, specific initiatives where our teams participate and facilitate. I mean, during the COVID pandemic, in some countries, we had to transition some of those platforms from a face-to-face -face meeting to a virtual meeting. And we used, you know, our Zoom capability, our um, Teams capability yeah. to provide that service to some governments, for example, in Uganda with the National Malaria Control Division mm. for that coordination to continue. Yeah. So we, we really look at the, the coordination platforms and try to work collaboratively and emphasize the value that we have. We don't try to do everything we really look at the context and what's the value add, mm. and then we play to our strengths. Mm. We, we won't be trying to compete to do everything or blowing the trumpet that we're the best at, you know, at things that we may not necessarily be good at. Mm. We're technical. We provide technical guidance. We really emphasize integrity as one of our values. We are accountable, and we share our data.
Yeah, uh, for those who are interested to learn more, the Malaria Consortium website is just packed with papers and publications and lessons learned and you have reports on everything that you're doing. It's uh, it's it's very beautifully designed as well. Uh, whoever whoever's responsible for your website deserves a lot of credit. I was I was, I was very impressed when I was doing doing some background research for this. What were you saying was uh, kind of the global funding gap for providing these basic anti-malarial uh, treatments? Uh, we're talking like five or ten billion dollars? Is that so? WHO estimates to yeah. achieve its annual targets within the global technical strategy for malaria. Yeah. It's about 6.8 billion per annum. Okay. Yeah. And 2020 or 2019, we were at 3 billion per annum. Four, uh, four left yeah. uh, to go. Okay. Yeah. So that's quite a bit of money, but in the scheme of, you know, uh, government budgets, philanthropic budgets globally, it's like, it's not that huge. It's, we wouldn't be so shocked if we found that actually that, that was being filled by, uh, by, by foreign aid or by philanthropists one way or another. Is there any explanation other than just, uh, you know, competing priorities for why it is that that gap isn't fully filled, that, why, why there isn't enough funding to provide these, all, all of these treatments? Yeah, I, I think it's it, it's a good question, Rob. And um, yeah, it's it's good to have that um, in mind because when we think in terms of six billion, seven billion, yeah, why it's an interesting question is if that could be filled. Yeah, I mean, there's huge benefits. Yeah, that can be had. Why it isn't? I guess it's it's how to position that need, hmm. how to position that need in a manner that makes it financeable. Yeah. Can you explain that? I mean, one of the things I'm learning is that using mortality and mobility Mm. as an argument Mm. to raise funding is probably not effective. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's effective with some people, I guess. It's effective with some people, but it's not enough. Yeah. There's more to raising this funding of that size than just articulating that X number of children are dying or X number of pregnant women don't have access. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes whether it's that funders don't want to get into things where they don't see a, a benefit and an attributable benefit that mm. you can actually say this amount of money has gone in and this is what one is getting out of it. Mm. They worry about things like accountability and how that money is used in an accountable and transparent manner that you are not inadvertently, you know, you don't have fraud or you don't have oh, yeah, corruption. Exactly. Yeah taking place. Some people then have the argument that national governments should be raising the majority of that funding Mm. when we know that they're struggling to meet all their needs. Mm. And yet we do need them to continue to support education, health systems Mm. and roads. So I think it is, it's how to position that need in a manner that makes it acceptable for new funding streams. Because I think what we need is new funding streams mm. and funding streams that are also reliable because it's no, I mean, it's, it, it, would, be, it would be more ideal if it's consistent. Mm. So if you can get that gap filled, is can we have that gap filled for the next three, four, five years so that the impact that we can achieve can mm. be sustained? And then that transmission potential I was talking about, mm. you are able to really drive it down mm. so that we don't have these um, ups and downs. Yeah. So it needs to be consistent and reliable. But I just think we've got to find the right arguments where if it's a cost effectiveness argument, what is it? We know that as a, there are many interventions that we don't have that data on cost effectiveness. How mm. do we package that? And then what is the long-term goal? I think a combination of near-term 
objectives and long-term objectives where malaria elimination is valued. There's a cost put to malaria elimination. You know that um, sub-Saharan Africa loses 12 or 15 billion per annum yeah. in lost productivity because of malaria. Yeah, that is something that's odd about the situation is that it's like, it's profitable. I mean, so we have to be a bit like clear about exactly what do we mean in the sense that it like, it pays for itself. I suppose it's that if you spent the money to provide all these treatments, then you would end up with more GDP in those countries than what you spent. So it's like returning. Now, it can't quite pay for itself because you can't recapture that easily and use it to fund the program. If you could, then it would be just like a win because in a sense it would cost nothing and then you would have this like all this leftover benefit of the lives that you saved. Yeah. But it is funny when you see programs that have the like GDP that they produce is less than what they cost, and yet they're not being funded. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's perverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's the argument, and that's something we're trying to get more astute at mm. in Malaria Consortium in terms of how we build those justifications or the business case for additional funding. Yeah, Because it can't just be, at least from a personal perspective, mm. I've observed that it just can't be a mortality, morbidity question. Yeah, There's got to be the economic justification, and then really this whole, this value to malaria elimination and what will be the long-term benefits for malaria-free world to us sooner rather than later. Hmm. What happens when climate change kicks in and we have, you know, more areas that potentially could be at risk of malaria? Hmm. So achieving that objective sooner, all right, what's the cost to that? And what's the cost to then investing in these you know, new novel innovations, interventions like mm. gene drive yeah. that could potentially help us get there faster. Yeah. I suppose if we're talking about spending $3 billion more per year in order to generate an extra 10 or $15 billion a year, then it is possible that you know, even if the government then is only recapturing 20% of that extra GDP in terms of taxation, that it can plausibly pay for itself fiscally in the yeah. long term yeah. for the government uh, it's, itself. I guess it's not quite as simple as that because they don't have perfect access to credit markets in order yes. to, to, to pay for it back. Uh, they might not. And there's also like risk. They're uncertain potentially about how large the rewards are. But I mean, it should be persuasive to departments of finance and, and, and the treasury and so on. That These things are like significantly like self-sustaining for, for the country itself and for the government. I suppose the argument back might just be, well, we have other projects as well that are also fantastically like profitable in this sense, uh, you know, improving education or solving other diseases as well. Also have these huge rates of return or internal rates of return. That's just kind of the nature of a country that has lots of preventable diseases or preventable problems that, that can be fixed at acceptable cost. Yeah. yeah. But you know, as, I, as, as I have mentioned, like in our sort of landscaping in terms of these partnerships, you know, when I talk about public-private partnerships, we are increasingly emphasizing philanthropy as an important stakeholder within these partnerships. Hmm. So in, in Nigeria, you know, we've been... In one of our programs, we've really been emphasizing, you know, public-private philanthropic partnerships. And then just the amazing work that we've been able to do in Nigeria with seasonal malaria prevention. Mm. And then you have local philanthropists in Nigeria who are also funding service delivery, but sometimes do not are not at the table, mm. right, when decisions are being made or when budgeting and financing is being discussed. Mm. So I think there is more scope to really bring those elements together, not only in the delivery, but also in the innovative financing mechanisms Mm. that need some attention because we do need new financing. And some of it will be domestic, 
all right, as countries increasingly improve their taxation. Mm. But we, we know what COVID has done to global economies. Mm. But what are the innovative financing mechanisms that could look at this near-term, long-term benefit mm. and really turn it into financial numbers mm. that some of these governments may actually decide to buy in? Right, yeah. So quite a few people in the audience were curious about kind of the, the gap between provision potentially of chemo prevention drugs and provision of nets and actual use. So there's this kind of mainstream concern that you provide nets or you provide drugs for free and then people just don't use them. Or I guess there's this really popular meme uh, that somehow got started that um, you provide people with nets to pr- protect them from mosquitoes and they, and they use them for fishing, which I think has has happened in at least some places, but I suspect is probably substantially overstated because it's a fun story to tell. Um, yeah, do, 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 do you want to comment on that? Uh, do, do, uh, how do you like measure whether things are actually being used and uh, to what degree are they being used? There is an a, a access and use gap for NETs and from some of the other interventions. And it's something we pay particular attention to because we would like is to close that gap mm. between access and use because then at least you're you're maximizing the impact that you get. And I think it's important to appreciate that wherever nets are distributed, the majority of the nets are being used. And I think WHO tracks that information. We track that information. So all the campaigns will have a component of results measurements that allow us to be able to have a sense in terms of those who have been given the net and those who sort of use the net. Mm. And, 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 and those results measurement systems have improved over time. Mm. I think the issue with um, misuse of nets, whether it's fishing, we've got to keep in mind that malaria is a consequence of poverty mm. and malaria can contribute to inequities. And let's appreciate that some of these households are really poor. Mm. And even this, this, the, the notion that they are actually using these nets for whether it's fishing or over their gardens is a sign of the poverty that some of these households are experiencing. Mm. And I think it is overstated because even in those households, what we know from all the evidence is that the access to nets is an important driver of use. And so by ensuring there is access, you are actually facilitating the use of and so, yes, from my perspective, I do hear people talking about fishing, et cetera. Mm. But when you go into those communities, majority of people are using those nets. And mm. I think data suggests that the majority of those nets are being used. So yeah. sometimes the question is, is it an old net that has been replaced? Is it a new net? And I think the, the, the fraction of nets that are being misused in that way is probably negligible yeah. compared to the nets that are having a positive impact in those communities. And so the question will be, what else is being done in those households that is addressing some of the livelihood issues that they are experiencing that we know malaria is a consequence, but also the level of poverty itself can contribute to malaria? Yeah, I I think from memory... Against Malaria Foundation has some auditing process where they go and check uh, like whether the nets are actually being used. And again, from memory, I think the rates of use were over 90%. So it's like, yeah, some people don't end up using them for one reason or another, but maybe possibly they use it for something else. But 
in terms of like measuring the cost effectiveness of what they do, they only do that relative to the like nets that are being used, or they only estimate the impact they're going to have based on nets that are actually hung up uh, when, when they go and check, not based on the number of nets that are d- distributed. One thing that amuses me, I guess, about the, the meme about phishing is like, what fraction of all households that are receiving nets are even near a place where they would go fishing or, or are interested in fishing as a like source of food? I think there was one particular like case where there was a village that was like specifically a fishing village that, that they all do they all do, do, do fishing. That's how they make their livelihood, and they were using the, the nets for this purpose. But I imagine the great majority of people receiving nets, like fishing, is not a key source yeah. of income. It's not the way that they're getting food in the first place. So it's hard to believe that this is like the first thing that they think of to do, especially if it would involve traveling to somewhere where they can plausibly fish with any meaningful success. It's a meme that like frustrates me because I suspect that people are into it in part because it's like a clever story. It's like, oh, you thought that the nets would help them, but actually it didn't. So it's like allows you to (laughs) one up other people with your like level of sophistication and knowledge, even if it's inaccurate. And also I think because it gives people an excuse for not donating. If, If they can always say, well, it's always the possibility that they'll use it for something else and that it won't actually help even though like 90% of the time it does. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure whether you share my cynicism. No, I do share cynicism. that. I yeah. do. I do share that cynicism because yeah. really it, it takes away the message from the positive impact that nets have, but mm. also the majority of people who actually use those nets um, the way they're intended. Mm. That for me in itself is also a, a signal that is a reminder of the inequities that thrive when malaria is present yeah. and that we should be doing more to ensure that that is access, that is access. Yeah, I mean, I suppose a natural response would be, well, well let's give them a net, uh, a bed net and a fishing net. And then, then yes. no, I have no for example, for example, <laughs> but, right? But oddly enough, that's not the policy proposal that jumps to people's mind. It's yeah. let's not give them the bed net. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. And then let's not give them the bed net. And then yeah. potentially they may not benefit. I think it distracts from the good that is to be had by mm. having nets. And, you know, when you look at the, the access use gap, it's somewhere between 5% and 10% yeah. on average, right? And with any intervention, whether it's nets or whether it's... Um, you always get some leakage. Like you, you, There will yeah. always be leakage. But when I say 10%, I, I'm not referring to the nets part, all right? Mm. I'm referring to the fact that sometimes... There are mothers who get nets and mm. keep them at home. Mm. And don't hang them up, sorry? Oh, yeah, because right. they're waiting for the child to be born. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that'll right. be a mismeasurement then if you said yeah. that there. Yeah. yeah. So they want to keep they want to keep the net for the child mm. to be born yeah, and then use the net with the child. Mm. So there's sometimes reasons why households will not use that net. There are times when, you know, a household gets a net and they there's another relative who doesn't have a net. Mm. They have been given two nets, all right, or three nets for that household. And then another household didn't get a net where they have a relative. Mm -hmm. And they give that one net to that household. So there's an element that those sort sort of stories can distract from the good that is to be had yeah. by increasing access because access is a determinant of use. Yeah. Now, earlier I mentioned about the social behavior change and you know, all that needs to go into engaging communities and making them engage and own and buy in. And that's one of the mitigating measures for that. And then with the monitoring systems that have been put in place and have continued to increase. So for example, some of the studies to identify who's using the net, but also to identify what the barriers are for use Mm. so that you can address some of those barriers. 
And then if you find that your specifications for the net don't resonate with the expectations, with the users, then you have to tailor a response, Mm. either for that location have slightly different nets or engage one of their respected leaders to really put the message out. Explain the value. Explain the value. And even not social accountability, if they identify people who are misusing the nets, then they should be able to discuss with those people and emphasize the value of the nets and why those nets need to be used. So there are mitigations. And the the answer to that isn't, let's not give a net. Hmm. But for me, it's that it's highlighting the pivotal role that lack of livelihoods, poverty is playing within malaria transmission. Yeah, we're slightly verging on uh, on me just ranting at this point, but uh, th- th- there is this general phenomenon that people who are trying to do good and, and charities are held to like bizarrely high standards of performance, where like almost any weakness can be criticised and and is viewed as like a decisive problem. So look, if ninety percent of nets were not being hung up and they were being used for something else or just thrown out, then that would be a very serious problem. Uh, but like, given that ninety percent plus are probably being used, as far as we can tell, the like misuse and non-use problem. It's odd that it gets such a high degree of focus. People just like want to like kick on a program or like show how it's like not quite as good as uh, good as people think. And they don't compare it to like other things. So like companies constantly kind of send me products or I buy things and I don't use the products that I buy like 90% of the time. There's almost always like some wastage. You know, people buy exercise equipment, they don't use it, they buy food, they throw some of it out. That is just kind of a normal part of life that like not everything runs at 100% efficiency. And there's no particular reason why you should expect a nonprofit to be different. In fact, if they were somehow, if, if a nonprofit was somehow like getting 100% use, then they're almost certainly spending too much time following up trying to insist that people are using the nets in order to be efficient in that dimension like while like wasting money on constant follow-up visits to persuade people. Like Some degree of inefficiency is actually efficient, if, if that makes sense. And do-goodery is one area where people are like not inclined to accept those kinds of trade-offs, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a high standard, Yeah, certainly. And um, the bar is very high. Um, we do try to achieve that high bar. And I think often we are achieving that high bar. Mm. Uh, but there's also the reality that we are operating in a real world setting. Yeah. And with, with, with all tools, you know, the diffusion of innovation graph, there's early adopters, late majority, and then you have always the laggards at the end. And then, as you've mentioned, they are measures that can be put in place. But for all interventions, they will be minority who may misuse or not necessarily use the way it's intended, but that should not distract from the good that is to be had by reaching the majority. You were involved in spearheading a National Research Centre for Malaria in Uganda uh, some some time ago. What's the value of having local research centres in areas that are seriously affected uh, by malaria, like focused on that specific location rather than just having research centres that are thinking about it purely at the global level? It's very important to have local research institutions Hmm. and researchers with the capacity to identify research uh, needs and to to participate and really lead on research, either it's operational research or implementation research, clinical trials, a variety of research is Hmm. really important. And we've seen it for seasonal malaria chemo prevention. Hmm. One of the reasons why the research on the efficacy of seasonal malaria chemo prevention was very quickly adopted in mm. the Sahel mm. was because a lot of those studies were done by national researchers. I see. Okay. And so as the results were available, they were able to link up with 
their counterparts in the ministries of health um, to speed up the process of the adoption. So the adoption process was quite rapid and straightforward. We've even seen it with RTSS. With RTSS, many of, I mean, the clinical trials, as well as the um, malaria vaccine implementation program, were done by local researchers mm. and some of them you know, with local inst- institutions. One of the things we, we, we did in Uganda was we, were, we had regular meetings between researchers and ministry officials. And in one of these meetings, there's this molecular scientist that was describing the genomics of mosquitoes yeah. and insecticide resistance. And then you had the decision maker in government who was sitting there and listening. And after his presentation saying in this parts of Uganda, the mosquitoes are resistant to this, they have this molecular genetics. And he looked at the scientist and he said, so what are you saying? Are you saying that I need to buy an insecticide for that mosquito here, another insecticide mm. for that mosquito there and there, and yet I have money to buy one insecticide. Mm. So can you make me understand yeah. how I'm going to be able to achieve my objectives with one insecticide? And you had this conversation between the science and the implementation. Mm. And it was a really lively conversation. And so you want to be able to have those conversations at country level. You want to be able to have those conversations ideally in a manner that emphasizes trust, Mm. in a manner that emphasizes evidence and neutrality. I mean, my personal experience, again, working in research in different settings is that having institutions with the capacity to do research in their context is a critical success factor for the adoption of some of these interventions and maintaining their quality. Yeah. Because once you've introduced, you still need the operational research, the monitoring and evaluation to identify what's going wrong, what's going well, and then tweak those in the setting to make sure that you continue to maximize and optimize the impact. Yeah. Okay. So I think I'm seeing three benefits there. One is that uh, you know, a study done in one country may not transfer accurately to another country because just like you know, the mosquitoes are different, the parasites are different, the you know the urban layout is different, and and so on. So it pays to have research that's at the specific place that you're actually thinking about rolling out a program. Then there's the fact that local researchers, you know, someone from a particular country doing the research is going to be more credible potentially to the government, or they're going to be like more able to coordinate with other people in that country because they're all from the same place, they speak the same speak the same language, I guess, both literally and potentially figuratively. And then the third thing is having local technical experts who have experience doing this research mean that they're available locally to tweak and improve the program once it actually starts getting delivered. Yeah. They have the technical know-how to yeah. uh, make things go really smoothly rather than just relying on someone in another, in another country who you may not be able to contact. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. If you had a large budget for research into new ways to tackle malaria or yeah, ways to improve existing interventions, uh, what would your top priorities be? Research to optimize what we currently have. Yeah. So operational research to really close the access gap, the coverage gap, Mm. why some communities not using particular intervention. So research to optimize what we currently have would be, I think, one area. And then I think a second area would be on some of the new novel interventions that are in the horizon. Um, Next generation nets, Next generation insecticides, you know, we've talked about insecticides that are more effective. So how those insecticides, you know, the role they're going to play within a comprehensive malaria program, where they should fit, how they will be adopted by local communities, how long they will last. Mm. So I think 
obviously RTSS and the malaria vaccine and its introduction, whether through a seasonal malaria chemoprevention platform or whether through an EPI expanded program of immunization platform, mm. really the rollout of RTSS and the, the you know how it fits within the mix that allows you to to really maintain the cost effectiveness of the comprehensive program. Mm. I would say the surveillance and response okay, yeah. and the value that it, it will have and the data that's required to make that surveillance and response as a valuable tool. Mm. So it's not just about cases, but also the mosquito, you know, the biting habits, mm. the breeding sites of the mosquito, you know, bringing that information in a manner that allows us to make better decisions. Mm. Then um, gene drives. Right, yeah. Certainly, as the evidence builds, I mean, Target Malaria is doing an amazing job. Certainly, kudos to them. I think there will be a question in terms of when we are at that point. Now, what does an introduction in a field setting look like? And it's something um, we would certainly um, be keen to participate in some of the research. And then there's, I don't know if your listeners have know of the omics technologies, proteomics, genomics, oh, right, yeah. all of that, mm. right? And the fact that with some tools like lab on chip diagnostics, mm. um, which is also another area that, 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 that is improving and could be a disruption. Yeah. I mean, Imperial College um, has, has led on a tool called Lacewing mm. that, um, you know, can have an assay that really can detect, for example, on the parasite, you can detect parasites that potentially the genomics of the parasite. Mm. And as they improve that, you know, you can't be able to say that this is Plasmodium falciparum, but not, but also that this has a gene for resistance to that antimalarial. Mm. So how that technology can be improved, but again, can also contribute to decision-making. So omics technologies and um, lab on chip diagnostics would be important. Anything that can improve our decision-making capacity, I think, is a research opportunity. Hmm. And then optimizing our current interventions and then speeding up the deployment in terms of having the results that can then contribute to global guidance hmm. and then national policy adoption and then scale-up would yeah. be my priority. In the past, as I mentioned in your bio, you've been involved in studying parasite-based diagnosis for malaria uh, and doing that before treatment rather than treating people without any diagnosis. Uh, and I think that resulted in changes to Uganda's standard uh, treatment approaches for people who have malaria symptoms. Yeah. Are there any interesting stories to share from that? What was the nature of the research and, and, and why did that end up changing the default approach? Well, it was a lot of research work and collaboration hmm. because policy change at country level, it involves stakeholders, especially WHO, hmm. you know, who provide normative guidance and work very closely with governments on adoption. But I think there, what was necessary is the evidence that rapid diagnostic tests hmm. could actually be safely used in the hands of community health workers. Hmm. And we're lucky at that time to have a grant from TDR, WHO, that was able to study how rapid diagnostic tools could be used by community health workers. We were also fortunate at that time, we had some funding from DFID, which is now FCDO, mm. um, to look at the efficacy of the, the treatments that Uganda was using 
and the fact that the combination of chloroquine and sulfadoxin pyrimethamine mm. was not um, as effective as it, 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 it had been. So I think I was in a fortunate situation, again, with Malaria Consortium, but also with the research center, that we were able to do the research that provided the evidence that was able to initiate the policy changes that were required. What was the safety concern that, that, that people had? Like, what was the case? Well, what was the reason why people weren't using the diagnosis, uh, diagnostics uh, by default to begin with? First of all, the, the challenge was, could a lay person mm. who's a community health worker use a rapid diagnostic test that would involve taking a blood sample mm. by using a lancet to do mm. a finger break? Mm. So the question was, could that be done safely? And if it was done safely, could that community health worker read the test result and then transmit that result accurately up the information chain. Yeah. So the safety concern was, would they be able to do it safely? Would they mm. create more harm? A risk of transmission, possibly, of risk something. Risk of transmission. Mm. And so we did a study that really, there were some insights there in that community health workers were able to follow instructions to the letter. More than people thought. More than more people, than people thought. Mm. All right. And to some extent, even better than people who were more skilled. Because <laughs> they don't want to read it. They just do their own thing. Possibly. Yeah. But I think also the fact that they were not able to question things. Mm. You know, mm. for them, it was, this is what it is mm. and I will do it. They weren't looking for shortcuts or they weren't saying, no, 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 I don't need to do this this way. I can do it some, you know. So literally they were able to follow instructions mm. and perform the tests as described and mm. as they were trained. Yeah. So we had training in place. We observed how they used the tests. And then a further worry was that would they give the treatment according to the test result or would they just still go ahead and give the treatment? Because potentially there could be fear that communities would apply pressure on the community health worker to continue giving treatments even when the test result was negative. Hmm. But one of the things we, we sort of made sure is that the community health worker was integral part of the community. So they were from the community and they were sort of acknowledged as community health workers mm. and that that person was doing, you know, what they could in the best interest of the community. And so if they refuse to give an anti-malaria because the test is negative, yeah. that is accepted. Okay. That's accepted. Yeah. And yeah. so we went through all that effort. But the outcome was that community health workers were able to mm. do the test and give um, antimalarials mm. um, as outlined in yeah. the protocol. And I guess actually a key benefit there is if someone ha has a fever, but they don't have malaria, then you can go on and investigate, well, what do exactly. they have? What's going on? Exactly. <laughs> because previously they were probably walking exactly. away from malaria medication exactly. and not getting any help. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. they could, for example, go to the private sector, or go to the yeah. nearest health facility to then sort of get a treated. Further investigation, yeah. yeah. And then there was a, where I, I do emphasize the issues around evidence is that as a researcher, you've got to be careful about conflicts of interest. Hmm. In what way? Commodities, hmm. right? For example, with RDTs at that time, there wasn't a quality assurance system in place. Hmm. Hmm. But obviously WHO has, and, and an organization called Fine Diagnostics, have put some kind of system that you're able to identify, or rather they're able to rank the quality of rapid diagnostic tests um, there's a quality assurance process for antimalarials already. But, you know, when you pick on tools to carry your research on, your choices 
I've really got to be very clear and transparent. Because why are you choosing one test, not the other? Mm-hmm. Because you could... It could be that there's like some commercial interest at yeah, play. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And manufacturers will be watching. You've chosen that commodity to do your research and not the other. And why? So with the choices we made, you know, we went through a process that allowed us to make the right choices based on sensitivity and specificity. Mm. Again, you've got to be transparent. And I remember when I was presenting some data in one of the meetings Mm. and this person said, no, James, you're making money out of this commodity because I was providing results that said this tool, all right, is effective. Mm. And the question was, no, 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 no. The reason you are saying that tool is working Mm. is because you're making money out of, Mm. you you have commercial interests. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Fortunately (laughs) for that meeting, Mm. I had actually printed the studies that had been done, hmm. right, on rapid diagnostic tests prior to that period, you know, sensitivity, specificity, etc. Hmm. So I had the papers. Yeah. And so when I was accused of, of having commercial interest, I said, here are the papers that have either similar evidence to hmm. what I'm describing hmm. or have evidence to suggest that some of the choices that were made are evidence-based. Hmm. These are the papers. I have no commercial interest. Yeah, And the data I'm presenting is based on a well-designed study that has collaborators. So, so they just assumed that you must have a commercial interest? Yes. Is that right? Okay, right, right. Because yes. that's just what you would expect. In yes. the, I see. <laughs> that's what you'd expect. Huh. Right? So the levels of trust are just like potentially quite low in some contexts. So you yes. have to like really be careful about you how people be, perceive what, yes. you're, what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Especially when it's choices between commodities. Again, you've got to be evidence-based. Yeah. Fortunately, as I said, WHO now has a pre-qualification process in place. Mm. So you already have choices that you can make. Um, but if it's like new products mm. um, and you're carrying out research, you, you, you know, you've really be, got to be attentive to some of the conflicts of interest mm. that can undermine some of the results that you put out or sometimes perceived conflicts of interest that you, you have in pushing a particular result um, Mm. towards policy. Mm. And I think that's, again, another role that we play as an organization where in situations where you have really good evidence, Mm. all right, we can actually sometimes take that evidence and use that evidence within the policy framework. Mm. Similar to what happened with SMC is that with SMC, as we transition into the policy arena, some of the work we did was at the interface with adopting policy. So here's all this evidence. And we are working on this project to demonstrate that this evidence can work in this context and is in the real world setting. And then it goes into policy change, which is why national organizations are really, really key Mm. because sometimes they can play that interlocutor role, Mm. right? When the evidence exists and they can't show it to work or adapt it for that particular context. But yeah, so it were many lessons. Um, but also I think one lesson that was, there was a qualitative study we did um, and researchers, we tend to really look at randomized control trials, quantitative things. Mm. And this one qualitative element, uh, we looked at, you know, as we rolled out RDTs, rapid diagnostic tests, mm. um, we, we, we looked at, you know, acceptance and use amongst the early adopters yeah. and use that to create a framework that we sort of proposed as a way to optimize acceptance and use. 
And I think it was an, an eye-opener for me in terms of how useful qualitative research can be I see. when you have quantitative um, results. Back it up, yeah. Okay, so uh, we're almost done. Going for, for many hours, and uh, I'm starting to flag, so I suspect yeah, <laughs> you, you might be as well. But I think there could be quite a lot of people in the audience who are like very excited about this conversation and very excited about the opportunities to control malaria and some of the other things that Malaria Consortium works on. What kinds of roles do you hire for, I guess, in the countries where most listeners are, which is going to be kind of UK, US, Australia, continental Europe? What kind of careers can people pursue in this area? We are, I think, constantly hiring, I think partly because we we continue to grow. Mm. So we have technical roles, whether in the UK or in our country offices. And then we have roles within management, within our enabling functions, finance, um, operations, um, as well as business development. Mm. And we have a huge interest in continuing to connect with our audiences by putting out publications. And so um, there's um, probably opportunities within our external relations team. So obviously, as an organization, we prudently create vacancies. Um, at, I mean, one of the areas that we're keen to expand on is our health economics capabilities. So we will be working on that in the next few months. We've just um, launched our new strategy. And so there are aspects within the strategy that require us to hire expertise. As I mentioned, health economics, health system strengthening. Mm. We will be looking at fundraising and how we resource that in the UK and also in some of our country offices. And then really management. We mm. need good managers who yeah. are able to take a strategy, implement it, but also prudently use the funding that we have, mm. unrestricted, restricted funding, in a manner that allows us to continue to be a, a valuable and influential organization for the foreseeable future. And we're constantly looking for new opportunities. So we do react to calls for proposals that donors put out there. Mm. And sometimes that requires us to hire new staff, either when we get the contract or sometimes um, donors require you to have at least hired the staff and name them in mm. the contract. Mm. So we're constantly looking. And I think we are fortunate that we continue to grow. And with our new strategy, we do envisage that we continue to aggressively pursue our mission, but also to look at things like universal health coverage, which mm. are increasingly becoming important, looking at how we can strengthen health systems after the, after the devastation that the pandemic has caused and mm. is still causing, because mm. I think it's easy to forget that immunization rates in sub-Saharan Africa and in some parts of Asia are still quite low. The epidemiology of covid you know, has not yet been influenced by high immunization rates. So we do envisage that COVID is, is, is going to continue being a disruptor in our programs. We will need the staff that can help us to cope with some of these disruptions and to continue raising the funding that we need to continue doing the work that we feel is important. Nice. For those who, uh, who don't imagine working at Malaria Consortium, but uh, are, you know, are interested in having an impact through donations, or we have quite a lot of listeners who are earning to give one way or another, do you want to make, a, make an appeal for how they can learn more about Malaria Consortium and what are the cases for donating to you specifically? So our website has a lot of information about the work we do. 
And I think one of our priorities is to make sure we are able to share and connect with our audiences. So we have a lot of information on our website that describes the projects that we run, um, the work that we do, and the, the, the people who are involved in this work. We also have the opportunity, you know, through our Just Giving link on our website, but also opportunities through Malaria Consortium US, which is an independent entity hmm. and that we work very closely with. So I think those opportunities sort of exist for your listeners to be able to, to sort of participate. We also run a scholarship fund for the late Dr. Sylvia Meek, who was um, one of the founders of Malaria Consortium and was the technical director before I joined. Unfortunately, she died of breast cancer. And we set up a scholarship fund for entomology because we identified entomology. And she you know, had always emphasized the importance of entomology and the fact that there were very few entomologists for the magnitude of malaria in terms of the mm. devastation that it causes, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia. So entomologists we, study insects, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, entomologists yeah. study insects. Yeah. So we set up a scholarship fund called the Dr. Sylvia Meek Scholarship Fund for Entomology. Mm. Um, and we've been fortunate using her legacy to be able to sponsor, um, so far I think we've sponsored about seven, there are two more um, mm. in universities. We have a collaboration with the University of Pretoria. We had um, two students in the University of Insuka in Nigeria and are working very closely with Mahido University in Thailand mm. to, 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 to really train more entomologists. And I've been fortunate to interact with some of the scholars who've, who've graduated know, highly motivated, want to do good. And that scholarship fund is also another opportunity mm. to contribute good in terms of creating the next generation of practitioners mm. who will be, you know, running some of these gene drive technologies, next generation nets, and trying to keep ahead of the mosquito. So there are a variety of opportunities. And as I have mentioned, we do get restricted funding and unrestricted funding. Mm. As an organization, the more unrestricted funding we can have really enables us to make choices and to work with our partners in country mm. uh, to identify how that funding mm. can really complement what exists and also do the research that we feel is really important. So I would really emphasize you know, that combination of restricted, which we know is important, and then unrestricted funding as well. Yeah, of course, uh, I guess uh, this is who are interested to learn more about the, the case for giving to a malaria consortium can also, of course, tend to give well, <laughs> which has a, has a very long report about uh, the various um, strengths of MC and I suppose also the reservations that people have or the questions that they've asked and where they've come down on them, uh, ultimately deciding to fund you to a very high degree. It is useful to keep in mind, most of the funding that's coming through GiveWell is the restricted funding for the chemo prevention. So one way that people can potentially get an edge if they've been persuaded by the various other things that you've mentioned here is to just often offer non-restricted funding that you can use uh, however you think is best. One final question, I guess you've got a very serious job and, and have had for a very long time, and I imagine it's very, very meaningful. But if you had to completely change careers to just do something where you were totally indifferent to improving the world and instead just trying to have a good time, what would you think uh, that career might be instead? You'll be surprised. I would have been a pilot. Okay. Yeah. Why is that? From a very young age, I've always been fascinated about aerodynamics mm. and um, just fascinated about the concept that you can have something so heavy yeah. <laughs> that can stay in the air. 
So I've always wanted to be a pilot. And anytime, you know, my parents would take us on planes, I would be looking at these pilots with white shirts and mm. dark glasses and, you know. Yeah, so, looking very cool. Yeah, looking mm. very cool. So I, I really wanted to be a pilot. And a couple of times I did get onto sort of single engine or twin engine planes, sit in the sort of co-pilot seat to see what's going on. So I would have been a pilot. Mm. One of my childhood superhero was Batman. Mm. And I had this action man and you could throw and he would have a, a parachute. So I thought, hmm, this is rather interesting. So I remember I took my mom's umbrella and climbed the top of the building. Yeah. And I jumped off with the umbrella open. Oh. To sort of <laughs> <laughs> How did that go for you? <laughs> no, I was really lucky. I didn't get injured. Right. right all right. Yeah. But I think the part the, the, the umbrella got really damaged. Yeah. But um it just uh, you know, the concept for me was if this thing mm. could remain, then I could get <laughs> off and drop slowly. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I was very fortunate I didn't yeah. break anything. But I've always been fascinated and even in my work when I travel, I'm really keen to know the plane I'm traveling in. Yeah. You know, I read about the plane, read about its strengths, the technology behind it. So that's one of my sort of fascinations. I would have been a pilot. Yeah. What got you into medicine instead? I'll tell you why. I think there was a point. No, I got very ill and I had to go into hospital. Two illnesses in my life that almost killed me. Hmm. One was malaria. Hmm. And I was very fortunate that my parents reacted quickly enough. But then I was really sick. And I was in hospital and a very close friend of my father, Dr. Katara, who's, who's now late, mm. picked interest and he realized that I was going to struggle being in the hospital. And he was a doctor attached. He was, I think, in his final year or had just recently graduated. And so he asked the hospital if he could admit me in his home. Interesting. Just next door. And the hospital agreed and... Dr. Gatara took me home with a drip, you know, everything mm. and looked after me. And from that experience, it struck me that I wanted to be that person that could make me feel secure. Mm. I was so worried. My parents were so worried that I was mm. going to die. And it just struck me that I needed to be someone who could do that to others. Yeah. And he's always been a mentor. Because mm. we're very, he was very close family friends, actually lived in England and died in England. And he was one of the strong influences on my life as I built my career. And one of the things he stressed as I got into medicine was that it is a profession for you to do good. Yeah. It's not a profession that is for you to make money, etc. It's that you as a doctor or you as a health professional should be doing good. And that's something I've tried to emphasize in my career, as well as in the work that I do. Yeah, I'm sure he would be uh, very proud of what you ended up doing. Uh, I imagine that he, he probably lived to see, see a bunch of it. So Yes, he did. My guest today has been Dr. James Tabenderana. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, James. Thank you very much, Rob. It's been my pleasure. And um, I hope your listeners have enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to work with James, Malaria Consortium is currently hiring for all sorts of roles, which you can find by going to malariaconsortium.org, then clicking About, and then clicking Careers. As of today, it looks like they're hiring for a senior technical advisor, 
a fundraising officer, a senior research specialist, a technical support officer, and a monitoring and evaluation specialist. All of those roles located in London. And they're also hiring for various procurement coordinators in a range of different countries. You can find those roles as well as another 300 related to global health and development on our job board at 80,000hours.org jobs. There's also, of course, another 700 jobs, scholarships and funding opportunities on the job board spread across all sorts of different issues that we discuss on this show. One other role I'll just quickly highlight is the position of in-house legal counsel at the broader legal entity in which 80,000 Hours is housed, which is called the Centre for Effective Altruism. It's become a real powerhouse, supporting an ever-growing number of valuable projects that are trying to improve the world in a major way. The Centre for Effective Altruism is looking for a lawyer to hopefully fill a pretty senior role that will ideally help them innovate much more quickly and manage upcoming risks as they grow. And they're currently not finding it super trivial to identify the right person for the position. Applications for that one close at the end of May, and you can learn a whole lot more about it at centreforeffectivealtruism.org slash careers. That's the UK spelling of Centre. If you know someone who could be a fit for that legal role or any of the other positions I've just mentioned, uh, then dropping that person a WhatsApp to let them know about it is likely to be the most good you can possibly accomplish in about two minutes of work. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.